Item two, opportunity for the public to comment on any matters within the committee's jurisdiction that are not on the agenda. Good morning. Good morning, my name is Jerry Durantler. The delayed implementation of the new citywide financial system has hampered the ability of city departments like Reckon Park, DPW, and others to present comprehensive bond expenditure reports in prior CGOBOC meetings. I'd like the CGOBOC to ask the city controller to update CGOBOC on the status of the financial system implementation, specifically, when will the new financial system be fully operational? Secondly, what is the current level of actual and committed expenditures relative to the initial contract and budget? And lastly, how many controller department FTEs are currently working on completing the financial system implementation? Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment? Seeing none. Item number three, approval with possible modification of the minutes of the March 25th, 2019 meeting. I'll move to approve the minutes with one uh, typo corrected. It's in item seven and it was about the capital planning program. I think the words capital planning program just got left out uh, in the line about Christian's request. You'll see it. Thank you. Okay, note it. Any other comments? Is there a second? All in favor? Aye. Aye. Oh, I'm sorry. Is there any public comment on the notes? Public comment? Minutes. Okay. Item number four. Presentation from Corey Canapari. Galanis about the public satisfaction survey and possible action by the committee in response to such presentation. Good morning, members. I'm Peg Stevenson, director of the performance section of the controller's office. Um, you'll recall part of your work plan that we did with you last year and this year was um, a couple of projects. This is one to uh, understand the public's uh, perception of the use of bond funds. We chose two projects and uh, hired a contractor, and Corey Canapari and Galanis has done um, a lot of work for the city and uh, different departments also works with us on the city survey. And uh, this is John Canapari, who's a primary researcher, and he's here to present the report and answer any questions that you might have. And um, thank you for taking this in, and uh, we're looking forward to trying to use the information to better understand how to help you manage and oversee the bond programs. Before we get in there, I want to uh, welcome our new member. Uh, can, how do you say it first? Siobhan. Siobhan, yep. welcome. Um, uh, I wanted to remind everyone, um, the reason that we're having this presentation, uh, this came um, before a lot of our new members have joined um, the committee. Um, and the question, one of our responsibilities is to ensure um, 
that uh, you know the the bonds in general. Um, the question we're trying to answer is, uh, does the bond meet the expectations of the voters? Um, and that's a very difficult thing to do because expectations are set um, with bonds um, during the uh, you know um, not just how the bond is written and not just how it's presented on the um, on the ballot, but also how it's uh, you know it's how it's advertised, um, what um, the voters. Um, uh, it influences what the voters think that the bond is going to do. Um, and so what this engagement came up when we were trying to understand how can we, um, as, a, as a body, uh, ensure that the, needs, the expectations of the voters are being met. Um, and so uh, we took one specific bond, which was a park and rec bond, I think, two, bond, two park and rec bonds. One park and rec, one street and sidewalk improvement. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, and went, went through a methodology, hired a, a consultant, and went through the methodology to try and um, understand those expectations. Again, very hard to do to understand what people are, are thinking they're going to get because um, everybody thinks differently. Um, but uh, that, that's where we are in this project. Chair Chu, if I can just uh, add a few thoughts. When we started looking at this, we found out that while bonds were created with uh, surveys of residents about what they wanted to be done, and then the bond was drafted with that in mind. Afterwards, there was not a follow-up, what would be the equivalent of an after-action report that said, well, didn't you, did you get what you wanted? And that became uh, a larger issue in some places where uh, there were changes to the sidewalks and the streets. Um, and so some businesses complained that there had been a loss of business for them uh, and storefronts were, were vacant and so forth. So the idea was that uh, we would then add to the uh, information that is available to the commission uh, information about what voters felt they got as a result of this. Um, and I think that that's where we're headed. I think that we should look at that as a, a larger issue beyond these two uh, forerunner uh, bonds and, st and consider this in all cases. Uh, it's hard to come up with the metric that can be used uh, across the board, but I'm sure we have people who are talented enough to come up with that. Um, there are, some of the metrics may be a little different for each one. For example, uh, if you want to look at the impact on, on residential serving businesses versus housing, uh, you can take a look at uh, what's happening uh, with the street changes around the flower mark, uh, where they want to change the street in front of the flower mark from four lanes to two lanes. And uh, the flower mark people are saying, well, that means we're going to have to move because we can no longer put our trucks into a, a two-lane street. It's, it's just not going to work for us. And so they're having to readjust all of that. It's not altogether clear when these things are being done if, if enough people are talking to each other about the unintended impact of some of the decisions that are being made. This would be helpful in all that regard. So I'm glad we're underway with it. One more thing before we start, I'd just like to thank and introduce you to Catherine Amalev of our staff, sitting on the end here, who is the person who uh, worked with Corey Canapari and Galanis on managing the study. Thank you, Peg. Can you hear me? Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate being able to present today. Um, as mentioned, I'm with Corey Canapere and Galanis. My name is John Canapere. I'm the CEO of the firm. Um, 
What I'm going to present today are some of the key findings from the studies we did. Um, as mentioned, there were two separate facilities and distinct facilities where we did these surveys. We did try to design the survey in such a way that, um, that there were some um, um, similarities in terms of the format of the survey and to the point of being able to sort of benchmark this um, in the future. The surveys are designed so that you could really take this, this format and utilize it going forward. Uh, knowing that there's going to be some tweaking that's that's needed as you go, but it does give you that benchmark opportunity. Uh, a little bit of background project overview. So um, the two locations were Raymond Kimball Playground, which is located on Geary Boulevard um, near Webster, and uh, Bartlett Street, so on 24th Street, out, out in the Mission. Um, the uh, purpose of the study was mentioned before, but but just to sort of repeat, it, it really was to gain an understanding of the perception and experience of users. Um, so what we did is we went out there and we surveyed people who were using the facility. We asked them the survey and asked them the questions um, utilizing our, our staff. Um, and so these were people who were going to Kimball Playground and using it. These were folks who were, um, you know, on the Bartlett Street um, location, actually either walking through or going to the farmer's market or using it in various ways. We did it dur during different seasons by design, so we did it both during the end of the summer as well as in the beginning of the year so that, you know, if there was a change there that we were able to capture that. And we also did it during different time periods. So it wasn't just in the morning at Kimball where you have people coming there. Um, it was also in the afternoon where you might get, you know, more of a teenager crowd or whatnot. Um, the methodology, so, so one of the, um, you know, one of the key pieces or the key piece of the study was a quantitative survey at both locations. And we did over 800 surveys um, at each location. Um, and in doing that, we really have enough to be able to look at the data in a very statistically reliable way and to break it out into different subgroups. And that's what we did in the full report. Today, I'm going to give you an overview of overall findings, but the full report does have a lot more detail. We also did a follow-up qualitative survey um, with about 40 people at each location. And the qualitative was really to get a little bit more depth, a little bit more um, you know, detailed questions. The follow-up was done by telephone, and it was done among people who had already participated in that quantitative survey. So we called them back and, and asked them for um, additional time. Quantitative survey was designed to really be done in five minutes out there so that people, even people who were in a rush, would participate. Um, the two locations are, are on the map there, so the Bartlett Street location, 22nd Street in the, between 21st and 22nd Street in the Mission District, and then the Kimball Playground location is located off of Geary Boulevard. Um, now, this shows you that green area is the entire Kimball um, Playground area. There's also a large um, turf, you know, AstroTurf area for soccer and whatnot. The, the playground improvements were really on the area towards Geary and on the outskirts of, of the um, of the facility itself, where they redid the playground, redid bathrooms, did additional landscaping, et cetera. Um, getting into key findings. So I'm going to talk about the Bartlett Street location first. Um, so one of the overall questions or initial questions was, in general, how would you rate the Bartlett Street Plaza update? And so you had 77% who rated that um, update as excellent or good. In addition to just that general question, we asked about sort of specific, you know, reasons or specific things that they liked about it or areas of improvement. But the 77% is, is a very strong number. 77% saying this is excellent or good on the surface is, is a strong percentage and, and a high share of, um, a high, sh high favorable share. Um, we, we asked whether folks had visited prior to the updates, and you had about seven in 10 who said that they had visited. So people had familiarity with, uh, or HighShare had familiarity with this location. 
I mean, keep in mind, some of the people we're surveying are people who live, you know, around the block and they walk through, you know, to get to work. For other people who, who work at locations and walk through, walk over to Bartlett Street um, for whatever reason. And then, um, so there's a variety of, of, um, of different um, respondents that we would get. But you had a high share who had visited before. Um, interestingly, it, it didn't really impact how they um, perceived the updates. So you still had about that seven in 10 who said, that they, that they reacted favorably, whether they had visited it before or after. So there wasn't a big difference there. And, and Kimball Kimble was, was sort of the same, which we'll get to, but you didn't have a big difference in terms of perception. Um, so you had six in 10 of all respondents who said that improvements would mean that they're more likely to use the area of Bartlett Street. So one of the charges was, what, how does this impact? You know, people who utilize this area. And so this was one of the questions that we, that we would use to sort of measure that. So you did have a high share, six in 10, who said that they would use it more often. 13% don't know, so, um, um, but, but six in 10 said, yes, I would use it more often based on these updates. Um, we, we also asked about um, uh, what they liked most about the improvements as well as areas um, or things that they would have done differently. And we asked the survey respondents this. So top reason mentioned at Bartlett um, in terms of what they liked the most was, was the landscaping and planting. So that's what stood out to a very high share. Now we have a whole list in the report of other things that, that people liked about it, but this was the top one. Um, in terms of areas of improvement, 17% said it should be cleaned more often. Um, and so that was the thing that came up most in terms of an area of improvement. Um, once we had gone through a, the, the first uh, third or half of the survey, we did ask um, about the use of, of the money. Okay, so initially just asking about, okay, how do you react to it? Would you use it more? And then we introduced a little more background in terms of the amount of money spent um, for this bond and, and how they reacted to that. And the question itself was approximately 1.7 million in SF Park bond money was spent to improve this area of Bartlett Street. Do you support or oppose the use of bond money for this purpose? 60% um, said that they did support the use of the bond money for that purpose, okay? 24% are neutral. So not one way or another. So you had a low share of people who said that they would oppose it, um, and about six in 10 who said that they would, they would support it. Um, when you look at it by San Francisco resident or folks who lived outside of San Francisco, because remember, we interviewed anybody you know, using that, that area, um, it was actually higher among San Francisco residents in terms of the support level. Um, and as maybe would be expected, you know, people who lived outside of San Francisco, you had a higher share of neutrals, you know, and, and maybe they felt like maybe I can't can't respond to this because it's, it's um, I don't live here. Okay. Um, now to go through some of those same questions for the Kimball playground. Um, I guess one thing to add is I, I think it is, it was very effective and useful to be able to do both of these different facilities because they're very different facilities. Um, so with Bartlett Street, you have a lot of people passing through or going to work or whatnot, whereas Kimball playground is more of a destination location. And I think you're gonna see some differences in terms of how people respond to it given that difference. Um, so you had 94% of rate Kimball Playground update is excellent or good, that's phenomenal. Okay, so looking around, how do you rate it, 94%. That, you know, all I can say is that's a, that's a very, very high share on any survey that we would do to get that highest share of excellent or good. Um, you had fewer people, when you compare it to Bartlett, who had actually visited prior to the updates. So 37% um, had visited prior to the updates. Similarly, with Bartlett, though, it, you know, it didn't make a big difference in terms of their perception. So um, they, they perceived, they, they, they rated it highly, whether they had visited before or after. Um, 
And then in terms of the um, likelihood of using it more often based on these improvements. So you had a, a, a high share, a very high share, 83% of respondents who said the playground improvements did make them more likely to use that facility. Um, very big number there, okay? And then 11% who said don't know. So this is, a, this is a higher share than Bartlett. It's not a comparison necessarily between the facilities, but this is high, 83%. Um, and, and then in terms of upgrades that people really noticed and improvements that they would have made if we could have done it all over again, two of the key upgrades that, that, that were cited were the play area and the playground equipment, about 30% mentioned that, and the landscaping plantings were the things that stood out most in terms of the improvements. And the, uh, in, in, in terms of things to consider, or people would have considered doing differently, uh, location of the bathrooms and the area needing more bathrooms. So if, um, when you look at that map, you've got the playground, and then you have to sort of walk around the fields to go to the bathrooms, to the, to the restrooms where they were located previous to the upgrade. And that's where, they, that's where they upgraded them. So people are saying they're too far away, as well as a condition. These bathrooms get used a lot. And I think um, you know, people mentioned that in terms of you know, condition of these bathrooms. Also, um, the uh, drug dealers, um, users, homeless in the area were mentioned. Um, and mentioned a little bit more, um, a little bit higher, on a little bit higher share among San Francisco residents in terms of that being an area of improvement. Um, keep in mind, though, very high share are rating this highly. So we want to bring these up, but I think you have to sort of measure, um, the, you know, these things. Um, and then, and then the question where we actually add in the uh, the, the the money component: approximately 3.3 million in SF Park bond money was spent to improve Kimball Playground. Do you support or oppose the use of uh, bond money for this purpose? And, and a very 83% would support it and only 2% oppose. So very high share approve of the bond money usage for this, for this facility. And that concludes my presentation. I'm happy to take any questions. I sure, yeah. Should I start? <laughs> yeah, please. Thank you, I have questions. I, I'm one of the newer members, so forgive me if this has been gone over before. Um, I have several questions for both projects how soon or late after the improvements were completed were the surveys undertaken? So, so we did these surveys, um, started doing the surveys about six months ago um, and, can, and did the surveys over the course of about four months. And so in terms of the dates of the... Of the um, can someone answer that in the room? Yeah. What, for instance, one was Kimball finished and one was Bartlett finished. And I then... Find it in our report. Yeah, because... That would be important to know sure. just how many people had been using it, um, using them both. Because yeah. my concern on both of them were the, some of the comments on how they could be improved, which was street cleanliness on Bartlett and then bathroom cleanliness and uh, vagrant issues in the playground. And um, to Larry's point, going forward, as we do more of these, it will be interesting to see if this is a trend in many projects or if these are one-offs, I guess what I'm getting at, Ben and others, is as, as bond improvements are completed and we have beautiful new facilities, whether it's Bartlett or a playground or a fire station or whatever, um, if, 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 if city departments are not maintaining them and people are complaining, that's a problem because we've just spent a lot of money to make these beautiful facilities, and if the people in the mission say the Bartlett sidewalks aren't being kept clean, that's not good. Now, again, maybe uh, maybe it's um, that's kind of the normal percentage for every street in the city. I don't know, but 
you know what I'm saying? So I think over time, as we do more of these, we'll see trends emerge, and it's maybe something that we can complain about. It's not really what we do. We don't work on operations. We just do the bond measures. But it's just, it'll be good, I think, as we do more of these, to see, it, you know, our, our homeless problems in every park that we redo, or the, or the facilities not being maintained on every street improvement. So, um, also, I, my question, what did Bartlett look like before the improvements? I was not familiar with it. To, to answer the first question about the, the timeline, so was it around 2015 in January that Bartlett was, was uh, construction was completed? Oh, that's good. So there was and a nice time. So there was okay, some time. Good, Kimball, good. similarly, 2015, sometime around Perfect. The summer. So there was time for people to use it, build up a history of use. Right. Perfect. As well as, like, from a survey perspective, we would never say, hey, you guys just finished that. Let's go out there two months later and do a yeah. survey because you're really not getting um, a good read on that. Okay, you really okay. would want to wait a certain amount of time, but it's a mm -hmm. great point to make that relatively consistent if this is done in the future. Right. Because you could get a very different reading depending on the timing. Right. And so was Bartlett pedestrianized prior to this? Has it always been a plaza, or was it just a regular alley in the mission, and this is a whole new? I, I don't know the answer to that. Do you know, Peg, do you know? The, the major elements of the redesign were more pedestrianization. There was traffic calming that was done. There was wider sidewalks. There's a, a canopy over part of it that's partly there for the service of a farmer's market that is there on Thursday evenings. And uh, landscaping that was added. And I don't remember if they moved the parking or not, but there was definitely improvements that would have made it um, less of a car street and more of a pedestrian street. Okay, so it's, cars still go on it. It's just, yes. I see. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Those are my questions. Chair Chu, I have a couple of questions. Do we have a breakdown on how many of the people who came had children? Uh, I don't think we asked a children question on there. We asked age, but we didn't ask about children. I'm just wondering, in terms of like the playground, mm -hmm. are we seeing a, a lot of use from families with children? Without a doubt, um, simply because of the way the survey was done and because of the design of the playground. In fact, there's a portion of that playground, like you see it a lot, where, where you know, unless somebody's accompanied by, by children, they, they can't enter. Now, we did survey, you know, caretakers and others, but you had, had, had many folks right. who were, yeah, so. And do you have any information on crime statistics in the area, since I saw that there was concern about drug dealers and, and so forth. So the drug dealer piece was, was really just a reflection of what respondents were mentioning. And again, it, I got to kind of couch that in such a way that you had a very high share of people who were mentioning improvements. And these were some of the top things that, that people mentioned. Right. We don't have crime statistics in our report itself, but I know that they are available and we certainly could include that. Uh, and uh, do I only ask this because it's come up now at the board about uh, the diversity of use. Uh, do you have any information on how diverse the population is? That are we, we, we do, absolutely. I, I guess um, we, we did ask ethnicity, we asked about household income, and from the survey, and we had that broken out in the full report. Additionally, the survey was done in multiple languages um, at both locations, um, Spanish, Chinese, um, Vietnamese, I believe, was the other language. What can you tell us now about uh, what that found? In terms of the percentage breakdown? Yeah, is it predominantly one or another? Or? Uh, no, it was, it was a mix at both locations. At the Bartlett Street location, it was a higher share of Hispanic, and we did more Spanish language questionnaires at that location. Um, I think at the uh, Kimball Street location, um, you know, less Hispanic, but you did have a, a high share of folks of color. I have the percentages. If you, um, I can, I can give them to you. No, that's that's good. I mean, one of the issues that had come up in an earlier part 
review was whether or not the parks that were being improved tilted towards higher income parts of the city. And uh, some of the reports indicated that uh, lower income parts of the city were not getting as much support. We, we absolutely have that, and that could definitely be, be looked at against, you know, the, the city statistics from an income level, but also, you know, household, you know, household size and income to, to yeah. that, that is absolutely something that could be uh, Great. that. Thank you. Yes. So what lessons have been learned from this, in your view? You know, I think from a, from a research perspective, I mean, what, you, what we found um, as an overarching, I mean, I think when you have a destination facility like Kimball, and I think maybe it's a common sense at the, at the end of the day, but you, you have a really high share of support and a high share of people who said this bond money was used well at both locations. Let me start with that. But when you have a destination location like Kimball, which has done well, and I'll say done well because that's what respondents are saying, um, you can get, you, your, your numbers are, are sort of off the charts in terms of what you're seeing as far as, as, far as um, both um, you know, support for, the, for the, uh, the project itself. But a lot of times in surveys that we do, when you throw that money component into it, you know, say we spent $2 million or $1.5, you know, people, you know, they, 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 they always think of other things where that money could be used. And, um, and so a lot of times when we do these types of surveys, once you throw that component into it, you know, your level of support drops quite a bit, you know, and, and for both of these locations, that didn't necessarily, that didn't happen. Um, and particularly for Kimball, where that support remained very high, even after we had told them, you know, the amount of money that had been spent. So I think, I think that would be one lesson learned. I think the other thing is that I think the value of keeping, just from a research perspective, the survey short. Because at Bartley, you have people walking through there, and they're they are not going to stop. And so if you design a survey that's too long, you don't get a cross-section of people who are actually doing it. You, you get the folks who've got plenty of time and who want to, you know, just talk to you. You know, and, and we were getting a lot of people who were like, if you can do the survey as I walk down the street before I get over there, and, and we, we set it up that way. So I think that's another lesson learned for all of the surveys that are done, um, and particularly for the street and sidewalk ones, keep them that length. Because at Kimball, they have a little more time. Somebody's, you know, they're, they're sitting there, not at Bartlett, not if you want to get good, good cross-section. Somebody's getting back to work, and they don't have the time. I hope some of these lessons will be applied to future bond surveys. To have a comment. Um, I, I noticed um, your um, when you describe both of them, but there's 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 one element that I would um, just bring to your attention and the members' attention is that these two playgrounds are very different in size. I think that um, I'm familiar with Kimball Playground, and I think that it is, as you say, more of a destination. And it also covers a much larger piece of land, if you will, so you have, would have less likely pedestrians that are just going to passing through. Yes. So I think that um, having brought that um, difference um, to our attention, these high numbers are very encouraging because they're very, very different plots of greens, if you will, in the city. So I, I just wanted to you know, bring that to your attention to see whether the size of the park mattered um, I, I don't, you know, in terms of the size, I think it matters more, more in what you initially said, which was, um, you know, the reason for visiting and the fact that people are coming there. Um, and so, you know, versus, you know, whether the size itself. I mean, you know, maybe from a, you know, uh, you know, the standpoint of how much can you do with the money you have, but from a survey perspective, um, you know, for us, 
definitely two locations, but the key difference being, you know, you know, a lot of folks coming to that location, whereas Bartlett, a lot of people just passing through and expect differences there in terms of perception. If somebody's passing through, they, 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 they're not necessarily going to Bartlett to utilize that. They see the improvements and can respond to them, but it's a different animal. It's different, and I'm glad you mentioned it and, 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 and plan that um, dollar mark, if you will, towards the end, because I think that tends to influence people. But again, um, going back to size, one of the reasons that we spent 3.3 million and one point something in Bartlett is because of the size of the, the changes. And, and there's a great deal of sports-related um, functions at Kimball, so um, it, it naturally would cost a lot more. So I, I think this is fantastic. You took something that I think is very hard to measure, and, and you, did a, you did a good job of putting structure around it. Um, uh, there's a number of problems with, obviously, the methodology is, you know, if you have people at, at a playground and you ask them whether they like it, they're there because they like it, right? They wouldn't be going to that playground if they hated it. So it's like there's sort of a little problem there. Um, but as we go and we think about what, what will we do with a much more complex bond, um, even, even Park and Rec, um, uh, if you ask people, you know, the real question is to the voters of, of, the, of the city, did, you know, in, in potentially the neighborhoods that didn't get any, their parks didn't get upgraded, are they still glad that they spent the money to upgrade the Kimball playground? Right. And I that, think that, that that's, go ahead. No, please. I mean, I, that's, it's really, that would really, that's a, it really a different survey, you know, for sure. I mean, the charge on this was really, let's talk to users. Okay. And we did talk a little bit about, do we go into the neighborhood and do some sort of a different type of intercept that way? And it, it made more sense, I think, from a research perspective to do users and to be able to have that sample size to really drill down on people who are utilizing it. I think in terms of understanding, um, you know, residents as a whole or voters as a whole in San Francisco, it's really a different survey. It becomes a citywide survey. Um, it is something where you, 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 know, you can ask about these, these, this bond funding and oftentimes what you're going to see in that kind of survey. And we, we've done many of those surveys as well well is that the folks um, who have had something done in their neighborhood or have noticed it or are users of it, you know, you, you're going to get a higher level of support there. Um, I think what I will say, having done a lot of San Francisco, um, you know, citywide surveys as well, is you, you do get high support for um, this type of, a, um, you know, this type of a measure, um, regardless of whether they've used it or not. It tends to be higher if they've used it or know about it, but you do get a pretty high level of support across the board. From, from the survey that we did, though, to be clear, we don't have the answer to that. That definitely is a different survey. It would be citywide, and you'd be doing a uh, you know, mix of all the different neighborhoods um, in a different way than we did this. And so um, on our agenda today is both um, earthquake and safety emergency response bonds, which have to do with, um, uh, I think, fire and, fire and police. Um, changes um, and um, and one even more difficult, which is the ho uh, housing. Um, and so uh, I think that if it, it, did you learn something in the doing of this that could extrapolate to something that would be re really helpful in those areas? I mean, I, I agree that it is the perception of our um, safety, right, it, our general safety. But I think that you can do that actually. You um, and, and, and housing, housing, I think, was sold as a bond that was um, uh, the perception of our, our vulnerable populations. 
wasn't necessarily about did I get a did I get a unit right next to me. Although for some people it is. Did, did I get a, um, a low income units right next to me? Um, and so there's there's a lot of nuances there. But I think that that's what we're trying to get at, particularly in, in our complex um, in environment, cultural environment, is um, are these um, bonds um, as they are being written and sold to the voters meeting the needs from that perspective? Right. And and, and I, I so to. You know, to, to address that, I would say from this study, it, what, because it was designed differently, I wouldn't say I, I pulled something from this, but just from having done other studies and, and seeing other studies that have been done in relation to what you're talking about, you can do surveying related to that, and you can get good information. It just would be done in a different way than this. This was really focused on, on this particular, these particular um, you know, measures themselves. Um, but for, for the earthquake safety or for, um, for the housing, that's more of a citywide you know, effort. Um, you know, again, making sure that you do reach the vulnerable populations, making sure you have the multilingual and that you're not you know, oversampling you know, a certain segment, which may feel, a certain, which may, uh, feel strongly you know, in regards to some of those. So I think the key to that is, again, is, is making sure you do set up the survey so you do get a good cross-section. Um, but but not in, in, you do it in a different way, yeah, without a doubt. That that would be something I think that we could consider is, is taking on a, a more complex bond. Just a, a couple of things to add to what John presented. It might be responsive to some of your questions. I mean, we'll take this data and share it with a couple of different uh, users in the city. One is capital planning, you know, who are thinking about sizing the bonds and the appetite of the voters for uh, supporting different types of bonds. And there's some interesting things that you can learn looking at the demographic breakdowns uh, when people are asked about the support questions. So uh, very useful from, from that perspective, I think. Um, and then just to remind people, whenever any of these things are done, there's a long community process about the design. Lots of public meetings um, showing people different designs, testing their th thinking, and, you know, I, I'm planning to send this information to the project managers who were the designers for these improvements to see if there's any um, similarities between things that were voiced in the design and things that we heard in the feedback. So the, there are at least those two uses. Um, and then the numbers of things that people mentioned in their uh, quoted comments to the surveyors that aren't to do with the capital improvement itself. I mean, this may be obvious to all of us who work in these areas, but um, people mention things which are largely about maintenance or safety or both. And so, you know, even if people support the uses of the bond for the capital improvement itself, it's not different from their experience of how it's maintained and whether there's litter and whether they feel safe and all those types of things. So it just should, you know, push home to all of us the importance of planning for those things when we plan uh, for bond improvements. So. Definitely. If I can just add a footnote here. That's if we're talking about how to sell it to the voters, one thing that, that does appeal to the voters is some information on economic impact. So what kind of economic impact did you have from the fact that you've got a, a, a night market uh, going in one place? And in the parks, are there little shops nearby that people are picking up okay. uh, a sandwich to go have in the park? Are there, are there any kind of economic uh, spillover? I don't know if you have done that in this survey, or, but you can certainly do it in future ones. Without a doubt, yeah. So in this particular survey, we didn't necessarily measure that, but um, it is certainly something that you would have some statistics on the, on the market itself in Bartlett, for example, and, and, and with Kimball. There are, there are some locations nearby. Thank you.
So to Kristen's point, have you been retained to do surveys on any other bond, uh, completed bond improvements? Not at this, not at this point. Do, oh, that's our decision today? Oh, this is, oh. Are you making a motion? I didn't know, I didn't know if this was a report and that you're right. looking at some other bond issues and, and we'll await. I, I, I so for the. <laughs> this was a, a test, um, the first of this particular type of um, survey that we've done. And um, we can discuss it as part of your work plan. And there's other surveying activity that goes on um, in other parts of the city that touch on these same issues. Um, so again, we can bring you information on some of those types of surveys if, as we discuss these. But this is really the first, the first of its type that we've done. And the only other thing I'd mention, you mentioned some of these big picture items like earthquake safety and, um, and housing. I mean, one other area to kind of you know keep in mind is there are other surveys you know Bay Area wide which are done you know occasionally we've done some in the past for MTC and related to housing in terms of and it's always good to um, you know we'll stay in touch with the controller on that but as those come out utilize that information as well so you're not trying to sort of reinvent the wheel in terms because sometimes you know again this is this is a few years old in terms of the one we did for MTC but there's a lot of very valuable information in terms of reaction to you know additional housing affordable housing and whatnot um, that was done Bay Area wide with San Francisco being a, a key portion with a high sample size which could be utilized and so I think using those secondary sources it's always good to go primary and to and to and to um, get exactly what you want but a lot of times that information is out there and we'll stay in touch with the controller's office as things uh, become available and make them make you aware of those. That would be great. Yep. Yeah, and I think you already did that with the bo park bonds, right? You pulled in some, the demographic information must have. Well, well d d the demographic information that we have, we have direct primary information from our respondents, but oh, okay. we pull in some as well. So, That's so we have both. We yeah, have yeah, absolutely. Yep. absolutely. Um, so it, it, I don't know how you guys feel, but I, I would love to continue this. Um, uh, Engage, engagement. Um, uh, we know from the capital planning from our previous meetings that um, another housing bond is coming up. I don't know that there's an ESER one, but we know there's another housing one. We know housing is a is a big issue here. Um, and so, I can I make a motion? Am I allowed to make a motion as a chair? <laughs> well, I'll make a motion. You can, so long as it's reasonably foreseeable within item number four. So we have item number four that discusses this mm -hmm. agenda item. Mm -hmm. The, the principle behind that is members of the public need to know what's going to be on the agenda before you take action. So if you propose a motion that seems within the parameters of this agenda item four, members of the public were aware of that, could have commented on it. So that's probably more of an answer than you wanted. <laughs> no, no. I couldn't give it. <laughs> I feel like I have to word it very oh. carefully. Okay. So I, I'd like to make a motion to continue our, sorry. Yes. And Ben. Ben rightly reminded me that we also have the 1920 work plan, which is 7B, I think. 7-2-B. So we can take it up there as well. So uh, I'm feeling it, man. What's that? <laughs> I'm feeling it. I'd <laughs> 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 like to make a motion to uh, continue our work around public satisfaction um, surveys um, and analysis. To, to your point, it doesn't have to necessarily be all survey. I um, second that motion. Through an orientation, through a focus on the housing bonds. And I would say, just to be just to be clear, I think that's perfectly fine. That's okay. perfectly Thank you. <laughs> I, I like to comment on the motion. It's it's not specific enough for me. We're either going to move forward with surveys on bond uh, projects that have been completed, or we're going to be talking about this a year from now and won't have. So. I'd like clarification on the motion. I personally would like to authorize 
more surveys on completed bond projects. I'll leave that up to the staff to decide which those projects are and who to hire, but I don't want these two to be the only two. To my earlier points, I'd like to start seeing trends in satisfaction on a variety of projects um, so that we can you know, raise other issues that might come up about, about cleanliness and safety and, and, and not let this go. So is this appropriate? Can we, ha can we actually... Can we talk about that in the work plan? Because I think that we can set um, volume expectations. Is that, is that in the work plan? That's how that happens? That, I see. Thank you. Makes sense. Okay. Can we vote? What? Public, Public comment. comment. Public comment. Yeah. Good morning. My name is Jerry Drattler. My comment is for the benefit of new CGOBOC members. I'd like to uh, talk about the point that was raised, capital expenditures versus ongoing maintenance and why it's important. One suggestion that has been discussed in past years and has never been acted on is for bond documents prepared by the city to specifically include an estimate of the annual future maintenance cost of capital expenditures. This is most relevant when there is a park or library capital expenditure that is funded with both private and public money. There is no such thing as a free public park in terms of ongoing maintenance. Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment? I, I, I would like to support uh, including that, and I'd like to also note that in addition, there are certain things that bonds do not pay for, but which are necessary for the functioning of the ultimate project. So for example, when we built San Francisco General Hospital and had that bond, it did not pay for all the equipment that was going to go into the hospital. That money had to be raised separately. So as long as you're talking to the public about what the bond is going to do, it's not a bad idea to say it's also going to require additional funding from a non-bond source for uh, additional work to bring this to full completion. Oh. Item number five, presentation from various... Oh, I'm sorry, I think we need to vote on the motion. On the motion. Do the motion again then. <laughs> um, to, yeah, sorry. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and do roll call. Member Bush? Yes. Chair Chu? Yes. Member Larkin? I'm gonna have to hear the motion again. Yeah, I can, I can try again. Yeah. <laughs> my, my energy's From gone. The top. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, to, to continue our work around the public satisfaction um, survey, mm -hmm. uh, to ask for um, another survey and analysis associated with um, the housing bonds. Oh. So essentially, we're going to do it Great. again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Member McHugh? Yes. Member McNulty? Yes. Member Natoli? Yes. Member Pantoja? Yes. Vice Chair Post? Yes. Motion passed. Item number five? 
presentation from various departments about the 2010 and 2014 Earthquake Safety Emergency Response Bond and possible action by the committee in response to such presentation? Good morning, Chairperson Chu, Commissioners. I am Charles Garris. I am a um, project manager, uh, program manager more specifically, on the Earthquake Safety and Emergency Response Bond programs 2010 and 2014. Uh, very happy to be here this morning again uh, to share with you the work that we've done and that we are doing going forward here. Uh, in regard to the overview, uh, you know that we have a variety of components in each bond. They usually align with first responder uh, functions of the city, and most specifically in regard to police and fire. At times we have others who participate in the bond program with us. Um, most recently in Easter 2014, uh, we had the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner as one of our projects. In regard to uh, at a high level where we've been and where we're headed, um, we've had some, some very nice uh, accomplishment in regard to the completion of two major fire station facilities, fire station 16 and fire station five. Uh, this report, by the way, is through the quarter, March of 2020, and so there are some things that have emerged since then, and I'll share those with you as they are notable, and specifically, again, Fire Station 5 was inaugurated on May 1st of this year. And uh, we're very happy with that project. It's uh, going to suggest to us, uh, you know, the new quality of facilities for the fire department as we go forward uh, on future bond programs. Um, I'll speak to the major projects. Fire Station 35, which is the fireboat station, uh, is Moving ahead, in, this, in a matter of speaking, we have um, secured a Conservation Development Commission permit. We're presently in the midst of securing, uh, or, or rather the fire department is in the midst of securing uh, an MOU with the port regarding the operation of the facility at the pier. Uh, that is a precursor to earning a permit from the port of San Francisco. Um, we expect that to occur uh, within this month, that is to say the, uh, the Port Commission's approval of that MOU and then that on the heels of that imme almost immediately will be the permit that we'll collect from the port. That will facilitate our continuing the project forward into construction with confidence. Uh, bond sales wise, we've sold all the bonds we intend to sell, certainly for 2010 and as well for 2014. 
As regards risks, issues, or concerns, um, as you all know, we've spoken to this before, these points actually haven't really changed since the last time we presented. Uh, the construction market in the city is quite uh, heated, very active as we describe it. Uh, there are upcharges that we wouldn't uh, normally see, so to speak. And when you understand that many of our budgets were set before this um, heating up of the marketplace back in 2013, back when the 2014 bond was being considered, you can understand that it puts a, a particular burden on us. Um, separately, uh, we're still working through the uh, financial system in regard to its um, granular level of reporting so that we understand uh, the expenditures. Um, but in regard to all three of these particular issues or concerns that have been raised, we do maintain what I consider to be prudent reserves uh, to anticipate any of the um, uh, upcharges, if you will, in regard to some of these components. Uh, there is one exception that I'll speak to a little bit later that is actually more of a challenge than everything else that we're involved with, but I'll speak to that as it comes forward. Uh, public safety building here, this is really just here because it is one of the projects certainly that we've had and we'll continue to share it with you insofar as it is one of the major components of ESER 2010. This project, which as you know is a new police headquarters and fire uh, station number four, uh, was completed a few years ago. It's been occupied and it is um, by all accounts uh, running well operationally uh, according to their needs and interests. And I'll just leave it at that. Certainly, if you have any questions regarding that, happy to respond to those. Um, for the next uh, couple of slides, or regarding the next component, I'm going to ask um, Project Manager Sh Sherry Katz to come up and offer you some comments. Sherry? Good morning, committee members. Um, I'm one of the project managers for FIRE, and I'll talk about, uh, give you an overview of Easter 2010 and 2014 recent accomplishments. Uh, as Charles said, FIRE Stations 6 and, 5 and 5 are complete. Um, FIRE Station 14 generators, FIRE Station 14 generator uh, is 90% um, complete, and we'll go to DBI for permit. Uh, recently, we, we still have 26 fire stations to um, replace the apparatus bay doors at, and recently we had, uh, we procured two jock contractors to do that work. Package 6 is one of those, uh, pack, uh, one of those projects that, uh, for one of those jocks. Um, and we expect that those Apparatus bay doors will uh, will start issuing work orders for those in early June. NFS twenty fourteen recent accomplishments include um, exterior envelope package four at fire station twenty two has been completed. The generator at thirty one. Uh, has bid and we've procured a contractor. That work is expected to start in early June. Fire Station 2 and 19 generators, those are still at DBI. Uh, Apparatus Bay Doors Package 3 was completed. That was comprised of 10 fire stations. All the Apparatus Bay Doors at those stations were replaced. Showers Package 2 is under construction and it's expected to be completed um, in 
uh, July. And uh, as Charles said, Fire Station, oh, Fire Station 35 um, is 50% complete in CDs, and uh, they did receive a BCDC permit at the end of April. Uh, Pier 26, uh, final completion at the end of May. Okay, I'll turn it back over to Charles. Actually, this is uh, going to be spoken to by Dave Meyerson. Uh, Dave is the project manager for the San Francisco P Public Utilities Commission who are directly managing the emergency firefighting water system. Dave. Thank you, Charles. Dave Meyerson, project manager, SFPUC. Uh, for Easter 2010, we continue to work on a renovation of AWSS pumping station number two, which is at the north end of Van Ness. It's a structural seismic renovation. That work is well underway. On the Easter 2014 component, uh, Irving Street pipeline, which was a replacement of a 12-inch pipeline with a new 20-inch pipeline from roughly 7th Avenue to 19th Avenue. Uh, that construction was complete. It's part of a larger public works contract. We're actively working on the Ashbury Bypass Pipeline and the Mariposa Terry Francois Boulevard Pipelines. Um, the first one is allows us to uh, get water from Twin Peaks Reservoir down to the rest of the system should there be a failure of the Ashbury um, facility, Ashbury Tank facility. And the Mariposa Terry Francois Pipeline is in the vicinity of the new Warriors Arena. Uh, we're awaiting, as part of a larger contract, the advertisement for 19th Avenue Pipeline. That'll go from Irving Street to Kirkham Street, kind of a continuation of the work we just did on Irving, upsizing from 12-inch to 20-inch pipeline. Uh, we will be advertising very soon for uh, another extension on Terry Francois Boulevard from where we end the current project at South Street going north uh, up to Mission Rock Street, and that'll, that's intended to serve the new giant seawall lot 337 uh, development. And I mentioned the Asbury Bypass project. We hope that's, uh, we expect that'll reach substantial completion in July. Uh, reporting next will be John Goldberg. Uh, John is a retired captain with the police department who has been acting as a principal liaison between police and our department. John. Good morning, committee members. John Goldberg. Um, so the ESA projects for 2014 regards to police facilities. Okay, I can go over them, but there's bed, uh, bread and butter projects, MEPs, structural strengthening, um, uh, generators. So they're all moving along very well, and that's despite challenges with the weather and unforeseen conditions during the first quarter of this year. I mean, most of the work is done on the exterior of the projects, but they're all moving along uh, according to schedule, and, and so we're doing well. If there's questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Uh, Office of Chief Medical Examiners, another project much like a public safety building that was completed. Uh, it's operating according to uh, requirement or expectation, and uh, I'll move on from there. Traffic. 
Company and Forensic Services Division. Uh, this is a project uh, for the police department as both uh, functions occur within their department. Um, I don't know how much uh, some of you know about this project. I, I don't want to take up too much of your time here. It is a, a rather unique project insofar as it uh, is a long needed uh, facility for the city, for the police department. Uh, heretofore, the Forensic Services Division has existed within the Hall of Justice and as well at uh, the shipyard, um, Hunters Point Shipyard. And this project is meant to um, bring them back together, so to speak, uh, and reconsolidate all of their services into one place, and that'll assure better oversight and management of the particular aspects of forensic services, um, inclusive of their crime lab, sometimes called the crime lab, but it's also uh, inclusive of uh, crime scene investigation. Um, so it's a very important project. Uh, they've been partnered with the traffic company um, because they're compatible insofar as they both are police department functions. And as well as you know, there's a larger ambition the city has to relocate current tenants of the Hall of Justice into new facilities. And this is um, one of the ways that we accomplish this is through the ESER bond program. So in regard to uh, accomplishments of the project, we've begun to bid out uh, core trade packages. Uh, we have begun to see some favorable response. I don't want to sort of talk about that too much. I might jinx the subsequent bid of trade bid packages, but we're, we're very happy that we're getting some, some decent numbers from the bid market currently. But we have a long ways to go yet. We're, we won't bid out the entirety of the project until the fall. August, September of this year. So we're not holding our breath, but we certainly are very optimistic that we'll continue to see more favorable um, response to our uh, solicitations for bid. Um, two major, or one, I'll speak about the major challenge that lays ahead, or lies ahead rather, and that's um, overcoming the funding deficit we currently have that's at approximately 17 million. Um, we do have access to funding sources uh, that will help uh, mitigate that uh, deficit. However, as I mentioned at the very outset of the presentation, we have a very superheated marketplace. We can't uh, necessarily anticipate or rely on a lot of favorable responses to our solicitations for bid. I would tell you, though, that as a footnote, this project went through one of the most rigorous uh, value engineering cost-cutting exercises I've ever been uh, party to. Um, uh, the goal always was to sustain the functional integrity of this project. We didn't want to sacrifice that uh, because it is a generational, generational facility. It won't be attempted again for another 50, 60 years. So we felt compelled to get it right the first time and to do whatever it took to get it there. But that said, as I mentioned, we have a deficit um, all the same. Um, we'll be able to perhaps the next time we report out to you, be able to give you uh, a more complete understanding of our circumstances. As I imagine, that will be towards uh, the end of that buyout of all the bid trade packages that we have um, to, uh, to offer to the, to the, to the bidder community. Um, there's other things out there as regards challenges. Certainly the, um, the uh, how should I put it, the, um, the trade war with China. Um, we don't have a handle yet on how that might yet still resonate. We do have certain expectations for an increase in the cost of steel. Uh, but then again, 
one never knows what else is going to be coming out of Washington that might actually resonate on the local level. So we, we are watching that very um, with great interest, I should say. And last, um, as a challenge to the project in part, um, has been the relationship with PG&E. Uh, PG&E has um, been a very reluctant participant in assisting us in regard to how uh, we need to cooperate with them as a principal provider of power. Uh, but there are, are other issues or aspects of, of our project that require their participation. Uh, we have a security barrier around the perimeter of the site that conflicts with their infrastructure. And we've been in conversation uh, with them for uh, literally years trying to bring their attention and their cooperation forward so that we can overcome those conflicts. Um, I'd love to tell you that that's all been settled, but it hasn't. Um, that is not an immediate threat to the project. Uh, there are things I won't bother you with that are a little bit more in the weeds um, that is, are still challenging, but we think we can reconcile those so that the delivery of the project isn't affected too very much. But the larger question of how we overcome this barrier conflict um, is one that we have some time to address, um, but it's, uh, it's been a challenge, a, a real challenge. There's been, as you probably know, a hearing uh, from the Board of Supervisors regarding PG&E's intransigence in assisting or cooperating with the city on public works. Um, so we'll keep hammering away, uh, hoping to, and expecting that we'll be able to uh, prevail when uh, we need to have resolution uh, realized. Um, in regard to our financials, as you can see for ESER 2010, uh, we are, for all intents and purposes, complete. Um, the two last projects that uh, Sherry mentioned, uh, Fire Stations 5 and 16, were the lion's share of what remained to be accomplished, and those are now done, so to speak. So we are at uh, near completion. There are some other object, uh, projects rather that uh, Sherry mentioned that are of the um, focus scope nature, uh, generators and at-bay doors, uh, but uh, percentage-wise, a very small percentage of what remains to uh, complete. On uh, Easter 2014, um, we're well, not quite as complete, but I would tell you that the Traffic Company and Forensic Services Project, uh, which is the largest project among projects here, uh, really uh, sort of contributes to uh, how much we've been able to expend to date. Um, all the work of ESER 2014 uh, will be completed um, within approximately two years. Um, and in that respect, then, we're virtually on the heels of uh, launching another ESER bond program. Some of you know that ESER is being proposed uh, for the ballot in March of 2020. Uh, and so there is abundant work to do uh, for public safety, first responders, police, and fire. And uh, we would look forward to the opportunity to, again, go before the voters who have supported the ESER bond program by about an 80% margin at the, at the ballot box. And we would hope that uh, the good work that has been accomplished thus far on behalf of the first responders uh, would motivate uh, voters to continue to um, support the ESER bond program. I do want to uh, now uh, conclude uh, for your questions, I, uh, but I also want to acknowledge the presence of Assistant Deputy Chief Anthony Rivera from the Fire Department, who is here to answer any questions that you may have that pertain to the realm of operations. Thank you. Before we go on to questions um, for the new members, um, 
Department of Public Works, and I guess the PUC now, but Department of Public Works in particular, um, often acts as the um, project managers and, and coordinators of these bonds on behalf of um, departments like the um, uh, police and the fire department and, and other departments. So we, we often hear from um, them as their oversight role, but the real beneficiaries are um, the, the police and the fire department. So I think it would be great to hear from anyone from the police and fire department, please, um, on how you feel it's going. Our, our concerns are on time, on budget, meeting the needs of the, of the voters. And so that's, that's part of, that's our governance role here. Good morning, everyone. Uh, happy Monday. Um, Assistant Deputy Chief Tony Rivera. Um, I think overall, uh, FIRE is very satisfied with the uh, progress that we're making, not only on the firehouses, but to uh, quote Mr. Goldberg, they're the bread and butter projects, which are um, uh, the roof replacements, generators, apparatus bay doors, uh, exterior envelopes such as uh, waterproofing and painting. Those are critical for us to uh, maintain a level of readiness. Um, I will also add and um, reinforce what uh, Charles stated. The, the um, construction market is super hot. It's tough to get um, uh, a lot of these contractors out here uh, for these city projects. Um, also, the rain has caused some delays, um, but we have been very diligent um, as a uh, uh, public safety entity to be able to respond, but it is great to get back into our firehouses and be back in our response areas. So uh, I, with that being said, we absolutely under, understand the challenges that um, DPW is dealing with, and uh, we, we support them, and we have really strong uh, uh, communication lines with DPW, uh, not always um, happy or fun, but w we we get the job done. So I, I would just say that we're we're very satisfied at at this point as fire department. Thank you. I'm the liaison from the police department, and I can just say from the police department's perspective, um, anyone that's lived through a remodeling you know, knows the challenges of having construction. And because we don't have the number of facilities fire has, you know, the, the police facilities are operational during this whole time. And so, you know, certainly there's been some challenges, but on the whole, there's been tremendous, you know, goodwill and, and, and cooperation, both between the department and the contractor. So I think the department, uh, their best case would be that it was just done and no, there'd be no impact, but, They've, they've been able to work together in, in a very uh, cooperative way, and I think, uh, at least from the police department's you know, position, they're very satisfied with the work that's being done and how it's being accomplished. Great. Thank you. Questions? Yes, I'm the new liaison to this bond program, and I want to thank Mr. Garris for a very informative meeting, bringing me up to speed on the 2010 and 2014 bond programs. I just have a couple of questions uh, from today's presentation. One is about Firehouse 5. Um, where is it? And you'd mentioned that it was, you didn't use state-of-the-art, but that was sort of the implication that it was a really nice, you know, highly functioning fire station that you thought perhaps could be similarly rolled out to future fire station improvements. So I'll take the first part of that question. I'd like to ask uh, Deputy Chief to respond to the second. Uh, fire Station 5 is at Turk and Webster. And it was a replacement facility. Um, Sometimes with uh, facilities that you're looking to uh, renovate or otherwise upgrade, 
it really doesn't recommend uh, fixing the existing uh, because it can approximate 75 or 80% of the cost of replacement. So if you have the resources, as we did for five, you commit to building it uh, in, a, in the most correct and modern way that you can, which is what we did. Uh, good morning again, Chief Tony Rivera. Can you repeat that second I, question? Yeah, I just please? was wondering if uh, it sounds like you're very pleased with the Firehouse 5 re rebuilding renovation. Can some of those improvements be rolled out to future firehouse renovations to, to bring them all up to a higher level? Or was it, you know, this is a one-off that we can't afford to Correct. do the same thing? Um, so the short answer is absolutely yes. Um, as we continue to uh, replace fire stations, we're learning how to um, not only uh, make the stations more efficient, but to incorporate a lot of the um, needed uh, requirements that a lot of the older fire stations don't have. So for example, a lot of our new stations now have training areas or like a classroom area, which can be a, a multi-use area. But if there's a new piece of equipment in the past, we'd have to go out onto the sidewalk, start these saws. You know, we're, 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 we were really, um, it was really, it is really challenging in a lot of our older firehouses just for space or a quiet space to have uh, our firefighter study for a uh, lieutenant's test, for example. And um, it's, I mean, from my year, I've been in 28 years. It is walking through station five. It's like walking into the future of firefighting, the, the, the level of uh, attention to detail and just having all of these different features is unbelievable. And we definitely will incorporate a lot of these features into uh, um, upcoming uh, firehouse replacement projects. Great, thank you. Okay. And then Charles, back to the, our problem child, the um, traffic company and forensic services division budget deficit for that project. I noticed in the detail you provided for us for the meeting, um, part of meeting that deficit was to defer, uh, I think a police and fire project, or maybe it was more than one of each. Can you just tell us more about that? Which projects will be deferred? How were those projects chosen? What are the pros and cons of, of doing that? There have been four projects identified, um, two for, from fire, two from the police department. Uh, the approximately total about $9 million. Um, the direction came from capital planning uh, to suspend those projects pending the outcome of the bid, the complete bid of the traffic company forensic services division. There, there is a possibility, albeit a very, very, very small one, that uh, we could successfully bid such that we would need, not need to avail ourselves of that um, $9 million, which would then permit us to go forward with those four projects. Um, as I said, that remains to be seen. Uh, the expectation would be that these four projects, which are considered priority, would uh, be accomplished in a subsequent uh, bond, presumably, uh, if we're lucky, Easter 2020. Did the... Um the capital services prior pick capital planning committee get back capital planning committee pick those and not the police department or the fire department well the police department did not have the number of projects pending sufficient to address the approximate goal of nine million dollars right and so the request a direction came to suspend f two fire projects that would allow us to get to the nine million dollar sum okay and was the fire department involved in that decision making I'm just wondering how capital 
programs is still prioritizing how, how the bonds are uh, yeah, implemented. Uh, yes, they were participants in the outcome of that. They were participants or they were they made the decision? They were asked. From the way you, okay, so they, they made were the asked decision. and they accepted. Okay. Um, well, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. I have no other further comments. I, I think the program looks quite strong. Again, I'm learning and getting up to speed, but I have nothing further than what I've said already. Uh, one thing I would like to maybe go back to for just for, for a second is that we're very resolute to make certain that as we go forward with uh, what we hope our future Easter bond programs, that we rely on the experiences, the lessons learned from prior delivery of projects. Um, we have assembled for FIRE, and we're reiterating it, um, a manual, if you will, of guidelines and standards for design so that any project that should follow can rely on an understanding of what works best um, that's been tested from the delivery of actual fire uh, station and related projects. We're doing something comparable for police, although we've not had the opportunity as yet to assemble and deliver a police station project. Um, we are setting about creating the first version of guidelines and standards for design of police stations. I would say that um, in recent time, there has been conversation regarding future facilities in areas of new development, whether at Treasure Island or Candlestick. Um, and these standards are useful for conversations with the entities involved with those projects because often they're third party, they're developer, and they want to understand what constitutes a functional uh, facility for police or fire. And so having these standards available to offer to them uh, gives the city you know, a, a position, if you will, on the expectation of what a new facility should contain, uh, rather than relying on someone to make sure that it, it's whole and complete as, as, as necessary or needed. Um, just parenthetically, uh, an, you all perhaps have read about Fire Station 13 on Sansom in the city. The city's hoping to pursue a developer-led project there that would produce housing. Um, as well as provide for a new fire station. So in conversations with the developer, uh, we have been sharing the information that we've garnered from the delivery of, of projects and certainly our guidelines and standards. And as I say, we feel that that uh, puts the city in the best position to assert its, its prerogative, which is to uh, expect a full and complete facility uh, no matter who provides it. Great, thank you for such a thoughtful approach. Um, a couple questions. Um, did you get your your finance numbers are as of March of 2019? Did did you get them out of the new finance system? Yes. Okay. Um, and thank you for bringing up um, the uh, PG&E and and how that's going. That's this is not the first time that we've heard that actually, um, and we don't meet that often. So <laughs> we don't talk about bonds that often. So the fact that, that we've heard it multiple times is 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 interesting. I think that as we look at the um, uh, the work plan um, or the uh, CSA uh, draft work plan, maybe we can try and address that because it seems to be coming a... Yeah, the truer challenge ultimately is if we have to expend funds to, to or seek to expend funds to accomplish work that we really believe is beholden to PG&E to provide, that it puts the city in an uncomfortable position of having to collect satisfaction through some legal action, which may not yield the total sum that was actually necessary and needed to perform the work. Um, so it, the, the, that shoe hasn't dropped yet. 
And I'm still very hopeful or optimistic that perhaps we can avoid this by bidding out successfully and just rely on the funds within our control. Uh, but as I said, that, that's a looming, uh, in a sense, threat uh, to the project. Yeah, and it, and it costs money, right? Having to deal with Correct. that deal, I mean, it, it well, increases the cost of, of building. We, we, the city, city attorneys are on the job. Because I was on the same thing, I was wondering, should this committee send a letter to PG&E? Would that be helpful, or is that not necessary at this stage? It sounds like you said the Board of Supervisors was on the case, and but you know, it seems to me if we could be helpful in helping you out to resolving what sounds like a long-term. Uh, certainly, that's your prerogative, Commissioner. Okay. Um, I think the more PG&E understands that people are mindful uh, or otherwise aware of what's occurring and how it's potentially putting the city's best interests at risk, couldn't hurt. If I can just add to your point, uh, I think a letter that also went, uh, the same letter, uh, to the mayor and to the governor, as well as to the board, uh, from my experience, gets more attention. Great. I, I'd love to, if it's okay with you guys, I'd love to talk about this when we get um, to 1D. No. Agenda item 7, 1D. Um, I, I have a few questions about this particular yeah, bond. If I if I may, um, uh, in terms of earthquake response and so forth, one of the issues that uh, has come up, I think uh, Commissioner Larkin has raised it as well, which is undergrounding the wires, which mm. is important for being able to respond uh, to uh, emergency situations. But I don't know that there's anything in either this bond or any future bonds that's going to address undergrounding wires that would uh, otherwise present a hazard for responses. I'm going to turn and look at Dave Meyerson from PUC to see whether he has some um, information regarding that. It's okay to say no, Dave. <laughs> okay. um, what I know about undergrounding wires is it's, it's enormously expensive. Uh, there was an, uh, an effort a number of years ago to uh, seek to do that. Yes. Um, there was a test project, as I understand, I'm going to characterize this at a very high level, uh, a test project to investigate the cost. And the cost was so great, it was determined not to be one that the city chose to pursue. Um, I can't say much more than that with any authority regarding what happened in that particular case. I do know that it has been asked and, so to speak, answered. Um, there is no current attempt within the context of the city proper as opposed to new development areas, if you will. New development areas, clearly, everything is being undergrounded. But in existing San Francisco, so to speak, um, th there is no program that I'm aware of to pursue that as in any near term. I, I, I raise it because of my own experience uh, working in the mayor's office responding to the 89 earthquake. And in the 89 earthquake, we certainly had neighborhoods that were inaccessible, uh, even for firefighters as a result of down wires. And so if you talk about the cost of undergrounding, you have to balance that against the cost of neighborhoods going up in flames, you know, which is a pretty big issue. Um, also, issues that have come up in the past um, are uh, whether or not our fire stations and our police stations are being designed to be gender neutral. In the past, we had problems assigning uh, women firefighters or women police officers to some stations. Has that problem been pretty well resolved as a result of, of new bonds? 
Well, certainly as we develop new facilities, we're doing uh, whatever gender parity is required uh, or prudent to accomplish or to pursue. Uh, within existing facilities, I would say it's, it's a mixed bag at best of how that's being accomplished. I know the, both departments, and maybe I'll ask the chief to speak to it, both departments are doing what they can do within the physical limitations of their facilities. Police stations, and again, um, retired Captain Goldberg can speak to this too, um, are notoriously sort of affected by just the uh, lack of um, facility for all officers, let alone distinguishing right. between uh, genders or among. Um, in that respect then, you know, we have much work to do and like, we look forward to future bond uh, measures giving us the, the, the underwriting, if you will, to address those inequities. But when you're talking about with capital planning or others who have input on what's going into the bond, uh, is uh, providing facilities, uh, regardless of gender, a priority? I'll, maybe I'll step away here and ask um, either uh, Chief Rivera or, uh, actually we have here um, Captain Alexa O'Brien. Uh, thank you, uh, Captain. And she can speak to this question as well. Captain. Uh, good afternoon, how are you? Thank you. Um, just to, I, I briefly heard the question, but can you ask it again so that I can properly some, address it? Some uh, problems were experienced in assigning uh, officers and firefighters to stations because of the lack of facilities that were gender neutral or which mm -hmm. handle women as well as men. So um, I've been in the department for 20 years and we have many um, transgender, um, uh, you know, of identity, you know, gender identity, um, various um, police officers across the board. And when we do have an officer coming to the station, we, we make it um, abundantly clear that we make a, a concessions and changes to address their needs um, as they come into our station. As far as making a blanket change across our station, each station operates very differently and has different size, uh, you know, amount of officers. So um, right now, like for instance, Central Station, um, the women's changing room in Central Station was approximately four to five people could fit in there. Now, that's a station that you've had since, I don't know, the 70s, you know, and it was predominantly male. So we have, um, you know, our, our female um, have increased in, in numbers tr significantly right. since then, especially at Central Station. And the officer, the female officers change in a bungalow outside of the station in a parking lot. So that is just female, male. So to accommodate somebody, we try to do the best we can and try to find solutions. Um, there have been times where officers go to a different station because it's more gender neutral. It's, it, you know, we have gender neutral bathrooms on the first floor, um, but at Central Station, it's almost impossible to accommodate everybody. Um, I think what he also was asking simply is, are there enough places at the stations for women to use the showers and to change no. and to go to the bathroom? And is that going to be changing going forward as we renovate police and fire stations? Are our women officers and firefighters having input into what they need? I, I think Larry was also. Uh, as we move forward and, and change the stations and, and hopefully get new stations that are seismically sound, 
absolutely those, those situations are going to be addressed. Um, and our department, not only the officers are speaking loudly about our, our accommodations, um, from female, male, to transgender, to everything in between, um, we are doing the best we can with what we have, which isn't very much right now. Um, and every station tries to adapt accordingly. But moving forward, I do believe um, every station, I don't know about the new stations that you, the fire department has, what they've done as far as gender neutral, but I know the police department. It's, not gender, it's just adequate facilities for all genders. That's really what we're asking. Oh, I thought it was more of like a I don't think gender, so. I think it was gender neutral. Uh, just that there are, have in the past been stations where there was no facilities or extremely limited facilities for women officers, women serving in a public safety function. And that wasn't gonna change unless there was a redesign of the station. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm looking at bond money and whether or not the bond money is going to help pay for redesigning any of those stations or if the bond money is not including things like that. You know, moving forward in, in redesigning, I know that that is probably one of the top priorities is um, for officers to don and doff um, and have, you know, accommodations to put our equipment and, uh, and not store it in our cars. Like Tenderloin Station is probably one of our smallest stations with the most amount of people. We've had a lot of construction there. Officers have been having to um, park their personal cars on streets. And we, don't, we just don't have room at the stations to store and accommodate all the officers at this time. So we added lockers to the hallway. We've added bungalows to the parking lots. And I know moving forward, I know DPW um, is going, they talk about it with us all the time about redesigning. How many lockers do you need? What, do you, what are your needs? So, yes, it is being addressed. I don't know about the fire. Uh, good morning again, Chief Tony Rivera. So to answer your question, um, when I first started with the fire department, every firehouse had a, every fire station bathroom had a sign that you would move from one side to the other that said men, women. And when you'd go in, you'd, I'd put it to men, go in, and then when you come out, you put it back to the center. Since then, the, um, every firehouse has facilities for men and women, with the exception of Fire Station 35, which is a historic fireboat. It ha also has a circular staircase, but it's going to be um, replaced or actually added to with this floating firehouse where we will have facilities for uh, not only male, female, but also all gender uh, um, facilities. All of the new stations that have been re uh, recently done, uh, for example, Station 16 and Station 5, all, not only have men, women, they also have all gender um, facilities. So I think we don't have an issue currently at, at our stations or facilities with that uh, problem that we used to have years ago. All right. And women firefighters are having input into the design of these renovated fire stations so that there will be adequate bathrooms and showers and the absolutely. facilities that absolutely we, separate. Yeah, no, absolutely. We do get, we have a very high standard when it comes to our firehouses, which are considered essential facilities. But what we have, what we have learned is that we incorporate a lot of the comments from the firefighters there may be a station that does more water rescues, another station that does more uh, urban wildland interface. So we have to get 
comments from these firefighters. One station may need an area to hang up their wetsuits where the other station is doing something else. They have a, um, a wildland truck. So we do incorporate members' input and uh, ensure that uh, the needs are being met uh, during the design process. I don't want to keep taking up time, but I have just one other question. That's on the waterfront, the fire station that's on the waterfront where the boat is. There was a problem getting the engine out uh, to service uh, fire needs because of the traffic on the Embarcadero. Uh, is that something that has been resolved? And if not, uh, what can be done about things like uh, the infrastructure around a fire station that prevents you from getting the, the engine out and into service? Uh, so I'm not aware of that issue. But I could look into it and find out if, if there is. I know that there was a recent um, street design change uh, on, I believe it's Harrison and um, Embarcadero that may, may have impacted the uh, egress of the fire engine from the station. But uh, I'd have to talk to the captain of the station and find out if they are having uh, issues with response. I, I guess uh, the larger question is, whether or not the fire department is in conversations with uh, DPW and others about streets as they're being redone so that the so that the engines can get out into service. Yeah, so the answer to that is yes. We actually do have a, um, a captain that works within my division that uh, reports directly to all uh, street design changes uh, meetings. Um, uh, he works uh, with the MTA and gives fire department operational input and um, uh, actually, we have a uh, flow chart where all of these design projects actually have to go through, and we've kind of learned same. We've learned from our past experience. We need input from everyone to ensure that not only the streets are safe, but that we have uh, public safety access for um, our larger vehicles. Thank you. Okay. Oh no, you go, Brent. I, got nothing I just have one question for Mr. Aguirre's. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for your presentation. And I wanted to thank you again for uh, providing a tour to myself and other GOBOC members. And at this point, there are some new members, especially, you know, um, for the liaison. If you haven't seen any of the buildings that we've, we've been discussing, it really helps to have a, have a tour. Um, I have had a tour of the public safety building as well as the medical examiner's building. And I can say that, um, especially medical examiner building, it was kind of state of the art. And um, so please take advantage of it. I'm sure Mr. Higueras, um is willing to give small group tour if you're interested. But I do have one specific question for you. Um, I was reviewing the um, quarterly report, so I'm going to make um, reference to these two spreadsheets in the back, um, attachment two. And what I noticed that of the 21 projects that are laid out in the timeline, there are 15 projects, some of them complete, and they show zero discrepancy in the three categories of baseline budget, current approved, and current projected. So that's a um, good mark. It's a good, that's a high percentage where there are no, no, no um, deltas in the way um, we um, show our budgets. However, I noticed that three of the 21 projects 
as I was looking at the same statistic. Um, and this would be baseline budget, current approved, and current projected. Um, there are three projects where we show substantial changes in this statistic, ranging from 20% to 61%. Um, and I, I'm not asking for specific um, explanations, but I was wondering if you could comment on how we could have that much of a zero discrepancy, and then for three projects, you would have kind of, in my opinion, kind of a, a substantial one. Um, and I, I did notice that the ones that had the discrepancies in the different uh, definitions of budget, they, they've been pretty much, they've, they've been completed as of this year. So you're talking about the fire station project, I imagine? Uh, 36, 5, and 16. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 36. Yes, these are 2010 and 2014. I yeah. kind of look at them in bulk, you know, sure. for, for the... I, I can give you very con concise... I, I just was wondering, you know, this seems to have been kind of a clean cut. A batch of them, you know, had um, zero discrepancies in the budgeted items and then some of them had some substantial ones. So at, at a high level, but hopefully sufficient to address level. your concern or, or, or the essence of your question. Fire Station uh, 36, rather, uh, was a project that, um, uh, in a sense, took on new life after it was completed. The department wished to have additional um, cooling capacity in that facility. They found that uh, what had been designed uh, was not helping them in peak uh, moments of, of heat in the San Francisco, which you know is fairly rare, but when it does happen, you wish that you had air conditioning. So uh, we um, provided uh, supplemental air conditioning to the space that had not been intended initially um, based on the set of circumstances at 36. So the facility was already done and occupied, but we kept the contract open, so technically it was not complete until we closed it out, but it was for that elementary aspect of work that came in at the very end of the job. So this was a need, you know, subsequent to after the project Correct. was completed and not anticipated in the original plan. It was not anticipated as part of the original project, but, you know, accruing to the uh, department's preference for avoiding those peak uh, uh, moments where it became, in their minds, untenable to reside in the facility, uh, we provided a supplemental cooling. On station number um, 16, uh, that project was, it seemed, uh, cursed uh, by uh, the challenges that are they're present in the marketplace, but um, the builder, candidly, found it difficult to uh, align with the bud, uh, schedule rather in a way that we expected that we sought to compel. Um, and he struggled. The, the facility, I believe, if, and I would ask the chief to comment if he wishes, facility was completed to, to satisfaction. Uh, it is performing according to need, uh, but it took a heck of a long time to get there. Sometimes that happens. A builder just finds it very difficult uh, to get on top of the situation and deliver the project according to expectation. The consequences uh, that they earn what we call non-compensable time, which then becomes um, the mechanism by which we assess liquidated damages uh, to cover the cost of the city for the time beyond uh, what was expected or allowed. So in that 
particular case, we are uh, intending to impose liquidated damages for the time, as I said, that was non-compensable. Compensable time is time that is, is earned or is appropriate. Um, non-compensable is, is when it entirely resides within the realm of the responsibility of the builder who failed to perform. Number five, uh, fire station five, uh, absent this <laughs> difference in schedule delivery, as I said, the project is enormously successful. Um, th this is a project that just was confounded by a host of unforeseen circumstances uh, that emerge sometimes. Um, you, know, you, you, dig, you dig into the ground and you find things that you just assume not have found. There was also, as you know, given the winter, a lot of rain delay impact to the project. Um, a lot of projects, not just this one, certainly. That's kind of an encapsulated description of why each of these projects uh, did not accrue according to expectation. Schedule Thank you. Um, just for the, for the new members, um, if this bond seems confusing to you, um, like there's a lot going on and it's really hard to govern, um, that's because it is. <laughs> um, it was written this way um, when it went to the ballot um, to do a whole bunch of things um, and to be prioritized as it, as it went along, or I, I guess it was written in the bond that way. Um, but uh, it's one of the challenges that that we have as GoBuck is the way that these, you know, way that these bonds are um, uh, are written. Um, when you look at are we on time or on budget, how do you even determine that if projects are coming in and out of the out of the out of the portfolio? So, I mean, that's something um, that we've been challenged with for a while. Um, uh, is there any public comment? Thank you. My name is Jerry Durantler. As a former C. Goldbach member, I'd like to share some things I learned in monitoring bond expenditures for the new C. Goldbach members. Many of the projects are very similar. You're going to see to prior bond-funded projects. In your liaison meetings, please ask what were the problems and lessons learned in prior firehouse, police station, and park remodels and road repaving projects. There is no point in repeating the same problems. Please also ask what changes in the initial bond expenditure scope are anticipated if there is an expenditure problem. A clear understanding of which are the A items, the B items, and the C items up front is very useful before bond funds are committed on the B and C items. Also, when project funds miraculously appear available from other bonds, please ask what was removed from the scope of that bond to free up those funds. Thank you. Call the next item. I'm sorry, what did you say? Pardon me? Can I call the next item? Yes, please. Item number six, presentation from the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development about the 2015 Affordable Housing Bond and 2016 Housing Bond and possible action by the committee in response to such presentation.
Um, good morning, members of the committee. My name is Rally Karapang. I'm the finance manager at the Mo at, at Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, reporting on the 2015 affordable housing bond. I'm filling in for our CFO, Benjamin McCloskey, who is out today. So for a brief overview of the affordable housing bond, it was approved in 2015 for a total of $310 million. So far, we've issued two bond issuances, uh, the first one for $75 million and the second one for $142 million, respectively. And we are preparing to issue a third and last issuance for the 2015 bond in the late summer, early fall of this year. As you may be familiar, we have three categories of expenditure, public housing, low-income housing, a portion of which is set aside for the Mission District, and middle-income housing. And you'll see in the upper portion of the slide a sample of jobs that this bond is intended for. We are very pleased to report to you that we've made good progress in spending down the first issuance. As of March this year, 97% of the first issuance funds have been encumbered and 80% have been spent. We expect to fully expend the first issuance by early next year. The second issuance was issued on May 2018 almost half of the second issuance funds has been encumbered and almost a third has been spent. We expect that the second issuance will be fully expended by late next year. So with regards to unit production, out of the 1,501 projected units, 43% are in pre-development 52% are in construction, and 5% um, are counted as completed. You might, you might see that there are two projects, two new, pro, uh, two new projects funded by the second issuance from the savings in 1990 Folsom and 88 Broadway slash 735 Davis. From the savings from 990 Folsom which is the project in the Mission District, we are funding 681 Florida, and from the savings from 88 Broadway and 735 Davis, we are funding 482 Geneva. We note that we are not assigning any unit count for 681 Florida, since uh, we are only contributing pre-development pre funds. So uh, as of today, we've, um, we've uh, actually, uh, Potrero Block X is already completed and inaugurated. Um, we expect to complete Sunnydale Parcel Q and um, several of our small sites this year. And we've also broken ground on 1296 Shotwell, 990 Folsom, and 88 Broadway. We expect those to be uh, completed next year. And beyond that, we have 4840 Mission, 300 Turk, 681 Florida, 
482 Geneva and 43rd in Irving, which is the teacher housing. And finally, here's a chart of um, our second issuance projected spending. And that concludes um, our report on the 2015 bond. Thank you. So before I start into the second presentation, I wanted to give the members an opportunity for if they had any questions on the first one. Um, did anybody get this in your packet? Because I yes, forward. It's toward the back. Yeah. Oh, I didn't That's look all the right order. Thank you. Sorry. Um, why don't we do the second one and then we'll ask questions? Great. Good morning, Jonah Lee from the mayor's office. I'm the director of portfolio management and preservation. And um, very pleased to be here today to report on the progress of the PASS program. So just a, a quick background, some key milestones. There's a lot of history here that dates back to when Robert Baratheon was sitting on the Iron Throne, or maybe not quite that far back. But I mean, 1992, the original bond authority was passed. Um, and it really was you know, over 20 years and only around $90 million was actually spent. And that was what ultimately led to the repurposing of that bond authority in 2016, known as Proposition C. <clears throat> as part of Proposition C, the funds that were remaining, about $261 million, were repurposed specifically to preserve affordable housing, preservation, and, and acquisition of, um, of existing housing in San Francisco. Um, fast forward to where we are today, we've successfully marketed and sold our first issuance of about $72 million, and we've also closed on the first loan within the program. Just a brief overview of the PASS program, and I'll go into some more details a little bit later in the presentation. PASS, the Preservation and Seismic Safety Program, essentially offers low-cost and long-term permanent financing for affordable housing developments. Um, a debt product that's really not available on the conventional market. And so, I mean, it's, it, it really is a fundamental component of uh, San Francisco's response to the, the displacement and affordability crisis in the city. And it really is structured in a way that complements the other existing work that we're doing through, for instance, our small sites program, um, the additional funding that's been allocated through ERAF recently, and also some new legislation re recently passed the Community Op Opportunity to Purchase Act. All of these are sort of different measures that, uh, tools, if you will, in the toolkit that allow our affordable, affordable, uh, affordable housing sponsors to be able to act and compete in this extremely competitive market uh, to preserve affordable housing in the city. Uh, so what, what is an eligible use? Acquisition and rehabilitation, of course, seismic safety retrofits, small sites and big sites, SROs. What's not eligible? You can't do new construction, and you can't just do acquisition without any rehabilitation. So why? Um, well, I mean, I think as everyone is, is very well aware, 
there has been a, a widening of the affordability gap. The, the affordability gap is essentially the gap between what market rent is and how much San Franciscans can afford. And so I think that this, I don't know if, it, if you can see this slide there or you have it in front of you, um, it's, I mean, it's just depressing. <laughs> um, the current average median income for a family of two, 100%, uh, in San Francisco is about $94,000, $95,000. And um, what's affordable for a family of two is about $2,400 a month with uh, a market rate one bedroom currently renting at around $3,450 a month. The affordability gap is over $1,000 a month, um, which another way to look at that um, instead of affordability gap is rent burden, and that's what percentage of a household's income they have to pay to cover their, their rent. And in that case, it would be over 44%. Um, so this table sort of shows what it is for a household at 80% of area median income. And you can see that um, it's, uh, we're, we're talking about rent burdens ranging from 55% from um, and, and, and even higher. And it's, it's um, a huge need. It's a huge need and what, <laughs> you know, if we looked at, if we looked at what the, the affordability gap is for a household earning less than 80% of area median income, it's, it's, it's even worse. And I'd say that one of the, one of the things that's, that's uh, one of the results of this widening of the affordability gap is an increase in displacement. And this, this map before this is a heap map that sort of shows, um, um, <clears throat> it shows concentrations of displacement over the last um, eight years um, mapped over over household income. And what we can see here very clearly is that um, formal evictions are, are truly concentrated in our neighborhoods um, of the, our lowest income residents. Um, and that, of course, is destabilizing our communities. It's causing housing insecurity, um, and especially for those households of, of low income. And so that's really why you know, we feel like this strategy to preserve existing housing, to, to remove it from the speculative market, is such an important part of the, the, uh, our work. And um, I have an example up here on, on, the, um, on the screen, 270 Turk. This is one of the projects that's, that's in um, our expected pipeline. We're, we're expecting to close on the financing for this in 2020. TNDC, the Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation, has already acquired the property, um, and they're doing the rehabilitation right now. And um, so we're talking about a 86-unit building on Turk and Leavenworth. What I have on the slide, you can sort of see a side-by-side -side comparison of um, what the financing would look like if this had to be done with conventional financing versus if there was financing available through the past program. And I feel like this really sort of demonstrates the value add that this program is, is bringing. So <clears throat> just to sort of um, run through this, the affordable rents, this is the, 
the rental income, the restricted income that's coming in is about uh, $1.4 million per year. And that leaves after expenses about $660,000 of net operating income, um, which could be used to support debt, right? So, and maybe if I, maybe let's talk about this as, a, as if this was like a, your own home and you were, you were, you were looking at buying, a, buying your own home. So affordable rents would essentially be your, your paycheck, how much money you're bringing in. And your operating expenses would be your you know, cost of meals and healthcare and, and other, your phone bill and the like. And your net operating income would be what's, what's left over after that, to pay for your rent, to pay for your mortgage. Um, now, if you had to go out to, and, and, and purchase this, this property, and of course the numbers are a little bit, probably re reduce some of the zeros to make it applicable, um, but you, you, know, you need to raise $27.5 million. $27 million. Um, the senior loan is essentially how much you can borrow, right? If you had to go out and get a mortgage. And the gap or the surplus, you should think about it as your equity, your down payment. And in the case of the city in our program, that's really the city's equity and the city's investment in, um, in, this, pro in this project. So um, looking sort of side by side here, you can see that, that conventional financing that's being offered to the market today um, and that um, our sponsors have historically had to get has been in the range of around 5.5%. Um, so a 5.5% loan with a 30-year term. If you compare that to the financing that, that we're offering under the past program, there's a significant benefit. We're talking about over 200 basis points in savings just on the interest rate, plus over 10 years longer on the term. And what that equates to is a significant increase in the amount of supportable financing. So we're going from 8.8 million in a conventional loan to over $13 million with the past loan through, through this program. That's over $4.3 million in additional loan proceeds um, and effectively reducing the amount of equity that, that we have to put in to preserve this project as permanently affordable. All right, so next steps and, and questions. Um, what we're working on very diligently is continuing with originations and developing our, our pipeline of projects. As I mentioned, we've already closed on the first financing earlier this month. Uh, by the end of 2019, we're expecting to close on an additional 13 projects. Um, reporting, we're gonna be, you know, by, by the time, the next time I'm here in front of you, we expect to have some additional metrics to report on investment, how we're reaching these, these um, you know, these really vulnerable populations, um, and, um, and of course, working on the next round of, of issuances. So, um, as you may recall from the, 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 the report, funds come available every single year, but we have, uh, we have some excess capacity, and we're expecting to, over the course of four total issuances, um, sell all of the bonds, the remaining $270 million, and, um, and, um, and, and roll it out. That um, concludes my, my remarks. I'm happy to open, open up for questions. Well, I'm the liaison on the housing bond. I have a few uh, 
observations to make and some points to ask you about. One is in the report in, in future, when, as you put it up, could you put at the top of it uh, the actual wording of the bond so that we can see that? It's the in the 2015. Oh, the 2015 uh, bond? 2015 bond uh, prop A. Yeah, we'll change that. So that we could see the actual wording. Because uh, there are some provisions that are in the wording uh, that give rise to additional questions. But just for the benefit of, especially of the new members of the committee, the housing bond is very different than the other bonds that we do. Instead of money being allocated to a city department like BPW to undertake the work, this money is set aside on, on NOFAs so that uh, a notice of funding application goes out and people apply for the funding and then it is awarded to a, uh, uh, either a for-profit or a non-profit organization to then build the housing. Uh, that means that there's a number of things that take place. It's going to be a more extended post, uh, program to put out the money than it might be if you already had a city department and you had a fire station and you were just going to rebuild the fire station. You know exactly what you're going to go do and where you're going to go and so it can be done. If, if you're handing out uh, grants to uh, community groups or to other groups, they have to come back and tell you where is the site that they're going to build on and how are they going to get the community appro approval for all of that. And that is a, a, not a quick process. Um, now, I'm not sure in the future if they're going to be going through the affordable housing construction by NOFAs or if it's going to be awarded directly to city agencies. But that's a question that, that still looms in front of us. One of the effects of that is that there'll be change orders that take place uh, when, as things evolve and you discover that a particular site isn't as feasible as it might have been or a particular location uh, might have a better purpose. I mean, we had back and forth on 440 Turk, I think. Uh, first it was going to be this and it was going to be that and now it's back to affordable housing. Um, so I think in the report, some explanation of change orders. What were the change orders that took place? And what was the reason for them? And what was the outcome? That will just help the public understand better how the affordable housing money was spent. Because we're looking at the question of on budget, on time, and on scope. And that's hard to do if you don't have specifics. The bond itself, for example, does not give allocations for so much for rental, so much for teacher housing, so much for middle income housing. It just gives categories. And then how those categories are allocated comes back to the mayor's office of housing. So some explanation about the process that resulted in those allocations would be a very helpful piece for the public to know. Um, in the uh, in the bond itself, it, it makes this reference, and I don't, I don't know how much weight we want to put on it, but it says specifically, um, the preservation of affordable rental housing buildings to prevent the eviction of long-term residents. And I'm not sure if in evaluating 
who ends up moving into housing that's being preserved are actual long-term residents versus people who need affordable housing and who have moved to the city to take a job or whatever else. It's not, not that one group is more deserving than another, but the voters were being told, at least implied, that long-term housing, long-term residents would be uh, a focus of the bond. And I know that that has been a, an issue for Mayor Breed because when I was at HUD, she went to Washington to, to ask for uh, a policy that allowed for affordable housing to draw primarily on residents within a certain zip code in order to meet the long-term housing needs of long-term residents. So to the extent that you can address that, it would be helpful to have additional information on that. Sure. Yeah. I know that there might be some civil rights rules that come into play on it, but I, I don't know what we know. Thank you, Kate Hartley, Director of the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. That language in the bond was specifically geared towards two categories of bond funding. One was the small sites program within the low-income housing set-aside, and in that case, we have actually preserved the housing of long-term city residents. Um, many of our of the residents who have lived in the who are living in the buildings acquired and rehabbed through the small sites program with the bond funding have um, their senior citizens. They've lived there for 30 years. They have very low rents and they're at risk of displacement. In addition, the public housing. Uh, bond allocation is um, a preservation program. We are preserving the communities uh, at Sunnydale and Potrero, the, the preserving the, the housing for um, those households, many of whom have lived there all their lives. In fact, there's many intergenerational families at Sunnydale and Potrero. So with respect to that particular bond language, that's what, um, the, that's what we were getting at. I think, I think that would be great to put that in the report so that people would have a sense that there was some delivery of, of the issue that was raised. That's a good idea. We will do that. And we will also add, I think uh, in, a, in prior bond reports, we talked about the switch of funding from one project to another when it happened. But I think that's a good idea just to keep it moving in all the bond reports so that if, you know, as people look at it freshly, they may have forgotten and we can make sure that that's clear. Thank you. Thank you. There's a, a larger issue besides the specifics of this bond, which is that how this bond fits in to overall housing needs of the city. As you say, the, the housing needs are outstripping our capacity to provide housing. And, and you can see that in stories about uh, there'll be 70 units available and you have 6,000 people who apply in one news story that appeared in the last 12 months. So uh, to some extent, since the Mayor's Office of Housing is both in charge of this bond and also in charge of looking in the larger sense of what the housing needs are in the city, if you could add some information that gives us sense that, that, uh, of where we are uh, and how this bond uh, plays a role in moving us towards our objective. Clearly, it provides housing for anybody who was able to get housing. But you're back to the question about whether or not there's a hole in our boat that's bigger than the bucket we've got that we're getting bailed out of. Um, and there are various 
reasons for that, some of which is that we're not building uh, affordable housing as much as we're building market rate housing, um, or that uh, the mix of, of uh, jobs in the city have drawn people of higher incomes and uh, people of uh, in service industries and others have been moving out of the city. And so we've, we've had a, a change in the population. And, I, and while this report can't answer all those questions, it can point you to where there's additional information that needs to be taken into account. What I think we can do if this sounds satisfactory um, to the committee is provide just a brief overview of all the resources that MoCD is uh, putting into affordable housing preservation and production. This is one tool in the toolkit, as they say. Um, we also, we have many other sources of funds, and we can talk about that, about our, our budget and efforts more holistically. Uh, in addition, um, we can provide a link to our annual report, which is on our website, and that gives a much broader picture. In addition, we're just going through our, uh, we're just finalizing right now our five-year consolidated plan that HUD requires of us, and it has very detailed information about um, needs, housing needs, and community uh, service needs, as well as goals. Um, and then the planning department has an affordable housing strategy that is also very informative. So we can, we can put those links in the report, the next report, um, so that people can have further information should they choose to uh, investigate. That would be helpful. I, I think that most people look at housing needs in terms of uh, the anecdotes of their own lives, um, a bit of a larger sense. So I know in my neighborhood where I live, I live in the castle, uh, and since I bought my home there, 19 uh, housing units have gone from rental to home ownership. That's like a huge shift that's been taking place in my neighborhood. But it's also happening in other neighborhoods, uh, especially when you have buildings that are two and three units, uh, or two or three stories tall, uh, because people find it more of a human scale. Um, so uh, one looks at that and extrapolates that this is, must be what's going on in the mission, or what's going on south of Market, or wherever else. And you don't really know. So a report that you guys would put together and link to would give us uh, a, a better picture than what we can see walking down the street. We're happy to do that. Thank you. I just wanted to add a comment. Um, just appreciate the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development putting this together. I thought um, this is a difficult topic. There's a lot going on with it. And it's, uh, as uh, Commissioner Bush mentioned like complex there's a lot of moving parts to this so I really think that uh, you did an excellent job of making this digestible and a little bit easier for us to grasp um, this doesn't work like the other bonds that we have here and I really appreciate you taking the time to get into that especially as we look for uh, another um, voter approved bond coming this November for 500 million it's great to incorporate these lessons think about it think about um, what we can feed back to us to make it easier for us to do our job and uh, you know, provide the oversight necessary for these projects. So thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for the presentation. I wanted to follow up a little bit on um, uh, Mr. Bush's um, 
comments and suggestions about how difficult it is for all of us to really follow these project changes. Um, I was just um, really appealing to you to think of a way um, that in between presentations, how you can highlight those changes. As said earlier, in projects, um, we talk about um, uh, changes. Um, it took me an awful long time to really figure out, uh, for example, in Laguna Honda, that project became like zilch, if you will. So the dollars that were related to the project were then redirected to other more pressing projects or projects could use the money. So is there some way, um, I know that you have certain presentations, you actually list the actual name of the projects, the dollar signs, so that, um, for example, if you had another project that's kind of live, if you will, or candidates, but next time we meet, that came, that fell by the wayside because of certain revelations that we found as we went to that project. I think that from a high level, that would at least get us some sense of, of the number of projects that have been held in abeyance or abandoned, and those dollars then be redirected so we can kind of follow some trail. And I don't have a good way how to do it, but it, it, it took me hours to really read the report to figure out which ones and how many dollars. And at the end of the day, it is, you know, I, I got it because I put the pieces in the puzzle. Um, but I, you know, I'm just expressing frustration, and I know that it's very difficult in, in, in the type of projects in this bond. Um, they're not so neat, if you will, and you don't find things until you, you go there. But in the meantime, somebody else on the team have found other opportunities that could use that money. So I think that you, your team has done a good job trying to take advantage of those opportunities, but it's very, very hard for us to follow so that we can fulfill our oversight duties as we're making sure that um, dollars are spent according to the way the bond is. And I understand within the four categories, you have a great deal of latitude to move around that as long as it's labeled under those four categories. And impacting the complexity to follow it is that some of these projects, I forget there are one or two buildings that have both a component of low income and affordable all in the same structure. So it, it, was, it was hard for me to say, well, did, you know, did they allocate this accordingly. Now the allocation is up to you on an operational basis, but I, you know, I'm appealing to you in order to design reports that are helpful for us. So when we read it, we can get like the top level changes of what you did and why you did it. So we don't, I don't have to go through every single little project just to assure myself that, wow, I'd understand what they did. I'm, I'm explaining it in a very long-winded way because it's a very complex way, really, for us to read all of it and then be satisfied that we know what we've read so that we can opine on your work. Committee Member McNulty, we did try to um, create a summary for you on page 36. There is a, a page, a table, that is labeled change in unit counts. 
and it shows um, the reporting of units produced in our last report, uh, what it is today, what the variance is, and comments. And we tried to achieve your goals there in, on one page, but I can see now that um, I think it would be helpful if we, if we annotated this a little more um, we could assign footnotes to the, for example, 250 Laguna started at 150 units. Um, in this March 31st report, there are zero units. We actually did not spend any bond funds on 250, uh, 250 Laguna. But um, what I, I think it would be more helpful to the committee to say a little more, such as the that project presented um, uh, previously unknown geotechnical problems and other very high cost factors that caused us to uh, redirect the funds we had reserved for that to 1296 Shotwell, also a senior project. So we can uh, flesh it out a little bit more if that's acceptable. And I think that you could highlight it in, you know, in the presentation highlights and then offer the reference to say for more details, see page. Great, we, we'll do that. Thank you. I, I'd like to support what you've just said particularly because it gives us an opportunity to learn from that as lessons learned and helps the public understand that there was uh, compelling reasons for changes other than just for the convenience of, of the office. Yes, we will definitely do that. We're not doing said, anything I'll, just I'll for just convenience sake. I'll just one more <laughs> point to support um, Mr. Bush is that I, I think that, um, you know, the housing bond had been a... Um, had attracted a lot of great interest in the general public, if you will. And we talk about metrics, and a lot of people are interested in looking at the total number of units. So the magic number here for this bond is 1501. Now, how we arrived at the 1501 and how it gets changed with the components, I think that that's really, um, you know, that's part of your responsibility. But what happens is that that magic number, 1501, gets floated around in public reports and newspapers. And it is part of this committee's responsibility to reassure ourselves on behalf of the citizens and asking this type of questions that the reallocations that your department does is valid, it's grounded on changes, unforeseen or foreseen. So what I'm trying to say is that um, people look at that 1501 number, but people rely on us to make sure that the shiftings, if you will, reallocations that total that number is something that is um, responsibly done and needed as you manage you know, the, the administration of the bond, operation of the bond. We'll, we'll provide much more detail, so that's a, it makes your job easier. Yeah. I have a few questions. Sorry. Can I ask one? Yeah. Because my span of attention is really <laughs> limited. Um, what, what are deferred loans? You referred to them in one of the presentations. I didn't get what they were. Deferred loans in the, in the past presentation. Uh, do you want to answer that, Jonah? Yeah. One or the others. Sure. Yeah, it's in the it, the deferred. The question was, what are the deferred loans? As they're one of the components of the past program. Yes. A deferred loan is a loan that makes no monthly payments until maturity. So it's a loan where all payments are deferred until the very end. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yep. Um, you know, and that. Uh, let me just 
build a little bit on, on that point. We had raised earlier the fact that we were unaware that some of the grants that were being given to entities to build affordable housing would never be repaid. Uh, in effect, they were, they were not loans, but they were going to end up being grants. Uh, is that still the case? Uh, not no. Um, they, all affordable housing has uh, what's called a, um, either a deferred or a residual receipts loan structure. They are, in fact, loans. We leverage them with other resources like low-income housing tax credits, and they must be bona fide loans uh, in order to get those federal tax credits. Uh, so the way that repayment works is that we have the, uh, and repayment is um, a function of keeping the rents low. So we keep rents low to make sure that the, uh, the housing is affordable. Then the owner pays for operating expenses and then pays the debt service on the loan. And then proceeds that are left over after that are our repayment. So in some years, we may get a high level of repayment if operating costs are stable. If there's an operating cost increase, that may lessen the repayment in a subsequent year. But that's by, um, but really what drives the repayment schedule is those affordable rents. Um, at Sunnydale and Petrero, for example, there are Section 8 subsidies which um, are able to leverage a high amount of debt. And with that kind of financing structure, we're much more likely to um, receive loan, regular loan repayments over time. So um, this bond uh, actually does not have any uh, outright grants. They're, they are, everything is uh, issued on a loan basis. When, when you do the overall view of how affordable housing funds are available to the Mayor's Office of Housing, I think it's worth pointing out what has happened with the federal funding, because you mentioned Section 8, and Section 8 funding is, is down from what it was a lot. It's down a lot. And then some programs like 202 or 811s, those were home that were earmarked for building senior housing or housing for the disabled, have been eliminated entirely. San Francisco hasn't received any of those funds in 10 years. So uh, also the funds for public housing and maintenance is down from what it was. and so. San Francisco is suddenly shouldering a, a, a burden that was once carried by federal tax dollars. So I have a related question to the finance one about the repayment. Um, can we see a, uh, uh, a financial statement that bring, says that shows that revenue coming back in? And when that revenue is coming in, is that bond money to be used again for bond stuff, or does that suddenly turn into operating cash? So um, we, we probably don't expect any repayments to come in because those loans are um, not expected to be paid by the nonprofit developers for a very long time. But Why, but, why is that? Because um, I think we just heard the opposite of that. Well, I, I understood it as something completely <laughs> we'll, different. Uh, so on an annual basis, we'll receive some loan repayments over time. Uh, and so our lo the loan proceeds that we get on any of our loans are repurposed um, back into affordable housing. Um, so we can provide the financial information sort of showing that, you know, what we receive annually in loan repayments and its, alloc it's reallocation. It's reallocated to um, a bond program? 
to be used as capital funds, or is it re, or does it suddenly become operations money? Because those uh, are two different things. So, when bond funds do come in for for this 2015 affordable housing uh, bond, they will be under the same restriction as the original bond. Okay. So and they're automatically uh, appropriated towards that restriction. Okay. So um, I'd like to see that financial. I'd like it. I'd like sure. to see where the revenue, when the revenue is coming in, and how the revenue is coming in. I know that sure. um, from the presentation that you've only signed one so far, right? That's this sixty twenty eighth Street. Is that correct? You said there's thir uh, yes. thirteen pending in twenty nineteen and one done. So that yes. that would mean that on page eleven of the report that that one. For the, that's for the past, which was a million dollars. So right. I, not a ton of revenue, I'm sure, but yes. I, I'd like to see that, um, you know, because you, because if you're making, you're making a lot of assumptions in in this whole program, sure. um, and and I want to make sure that I understand where that revenue is. Yeah. So for the for the 2015 bond, which is separate from the past funding, as you know, um, we have small sites projects that have closed and central and a. Uh, Petrero Parcel X has just recently uh, opened up, the financing closed. So we're not going to have any, uh, we'll have a small, we may have a small amount of um, repayment proceeds from, this, from the um, small sites program today, and we can show you that. Um, and then over time it will grow, but we don't, uh, because the, we, most of the, um, most of the projects are in construction now or in pre-development. There's not a, a huge yeah, I, flow. But I'd like to see projections. Yeah. I don't, it doesn't have to be the actuals, and particularly um, for the $71 million, and when is, when is that revenue coming in, and when do we expect that revenue to start coming in? Um, uh, thank you for the metrics for success. I appreciate that. Um, can you, uh, you told us what, how, what metrics you're using, but you didn't give us any targets. So I'm not sure how to, how to use those metrics of success. Um, and, and for my colleagues, it's not in this report. So this report is not very robust. So if we could make this past report a little bit more robust. Um, for my colleagues, the metrics of success are on page 16 of the report that we got, which are three. Total number of developments, residential units, commercial, and units preserved. Total number of households served by target population and total amount invested. Um, so if you can give us what you know what, what you're targeting those what success looks to you that would be really helpful um, to Brenda's point about the 1501 earlier it gives us something that we can actually look at and measure against. Sure, I would I would just say quickly in response that we the initial estimate when we when we sized up the program was that in aggregate we would be able to preserve approximately 1,400 apartments. That's great. So if we can get it in the report regularly yeah, and that, into the main. Yeah, I'll add it to the metrics. It is on, on page eight. Okay, yeah, if you could add it to the metrics. Um, and then finally, why issue more bonds right now? You guys have only closed one for a million dollars. You've got another $70 million. I mean, isn't there, isn't there like something about the, it, they've got to be used at a certain time or something? I mean, I think there's actually oh. laws around this too of issuing way too early. I, so I, just to clarify, with the, the, the next upcoming issuance is not for past, it's for the third, the third issuance of 2015A. Oh, okay. Um, the, the next, the second issuance for past is expected to be in 2020. Okay. I will ask you the same question in 2020. Fair enough. 
Okay. Any other questions? Public comment? Seeing none, thank you for your time. Can you call the next item? Um, do you want to, uh, would you like me to call all the items for? Yeah. Okay. So item number seven, opportunity for committee members to comment or act on any matters within the committee's jurisdiction. One, fiscal year 2018 to 2019 GOBOC work initiatives. A, standardized templates. B, expenditure audits. C, public finance, upcoming bond issuance. D, CSA FY19 to 20 draft work plan. Two, other committee business. A, GOBOC fiscal year 2018 to 2019 annual report. B, GOBOC fiscal year 19 to 20 draft work plan. I would note for the record, since there are no members of the public in the room now, we don't have to worry about taking public comment on each okay. of Thank you. Yeah, we missed some of it today. So, I know you're going to run short of time. We'll talk very quickly. Um, some of these you don't have to spend any time on. I'll try and just do one sentence on each of those. I'm Peg Stevenson from the performance side of uh, City Services Auditor. On standardized templates, we will put time in our work plan to have staff assist you on this subject during the upcoming fiscal year. And it's just up to you to confirm a liaison to work with us on it. And I think Chair Chu maybe has already volunteered herself for that. Uh, B, expenditure audits. Um, we put them on your schedule for fiscal year 1920 in accordance with the issuance calendar that the audits unit has planned on. So I'll just let you know that. And if you have questions about it, Mark De La Rosa from the audits group is here and he can address them. Public finance upcoming debt issuances. You have the memo in your packet which shows you the upcoming debt issuances. And Jamie K. Rubin from our public finance office is here if you have any questions about those. And uh, the CSA work plan, um, this is where we uh, give you a little sense of the, what's coming up in our work plan for the coming fiscal year. And uh, we'll just talk really, really quickly on that. Um, there's a couple of new members, so just some lightning overview of what the City Services Auditor is all about. Um, we're a creature of a 2003 charter amendment, um, and what it does is set aside two-tenths of 1% of city funding to do internal audits and performance and technical assistance and reporting to the public on the city's level and effectiveness of public services. Um, it requires, in some cases, very specific activities like the streets, parks, and sidewalks uh, evaluation program, the whistleblower program, and then in other cases, it's very general. It sort of says, look at the level and effectiveness of city services, uh, measure and report on it, and be, uh, improve our transparency with the public. So that's in very general terms what we're trying to do. Um, we, the f just to give you a sense of funding scale, so that two-tenths of 1% set aside is now about $19.5 million in the operating budget and a couple of million dollars in the capital budgets, which varies by um, issuances during the year. Our organizations are about 68 people full-time, about half auditors and half performance analysis and technical, technical assistance staff. Um, our budget looks like the city budget. So the largest city departments are our largest budgets. We have about $5 million worth 
of general fund money, uh, 4.75 million from the Department of Public Health, split between the two hospitals and their general operating cost center, and on down the line there, where, again, the city's largest departments are our largest departments. If we don't spend the money, it goes back to the bottom line of the department that it came from. So if we don't do work with and for them um, to take up all the funding that they provide, the money goes back to their bottom line. Um, there's, a, like I said, two units, an audits group and a performance and technical assistance group. Uh, the audits group is uh, the city's internal auditor and uh, functions in the way that you would understand that for uh, uh, all public services. The city performance group does the standards and benchmarking work that I mentioned. Um, we operate the city's uh, citywide performance program and provide all manner of technical assistance to departments to improve their services. Um, we are a find a way or make one um, kind of operation, and so we could do projects kind of at any level of the organization. Um, our work planning process, we look at everything that's required in the charter and the admin code, what's in the city's grants and leases, and in my graduate school, we would have called it a linear programming problem where you're looking at lots of different mandates and trying to figure out what your work plan should be to accommodate as many of them as possible. We meet with all the city departments. We go down a couple layers in their org structure. We talk to the Board of Supervisors. We talk to the Mayor's office. We look at audit reports, civil grand jury reports, and kind of anything that affects their operating environment to understand what they need and design our work program from there. Um, our programs, again, just to touch on these very quickly, performance, uh, I hope you read and look at our reports and look at the scorecards and the benchmarking websites. I think we've made huge improvements in these programs in the last couple of years through the leadership of Natasha Mihal, who's our performance program director. The LEAN program, we're teaching business process analysis and improvement citywide so that all city departments can understand how to improve their work without having to buy new technology or get new money necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, our leader for that is Ryan Hunter. Data Academy, again, we're teaching here, so all city departments have opportunity to learn how to use Excel, Tableau, Microsoft BI, and other things that let them use data to make decisions and have dashboards and usable tools for their um, managers to make decisions. So they're not waiting for us to do that. They can do it themselves. Uh, nonprofit program, all the city departments that contract with nonprofits, the ones where there's a contract with more than one department at the same time, do joint monitoring, and so it's quite a bit of effort on our part to keep that joint monitoring program running, set the standards, issue a report every year, and provide technical assistance to any CBOs that um, are in need of it. And I can't quite see the titles of the others because of the closed captioning, but um, oh, uh, management and employment, uh, this is where we look at citywide labor force activity and standards and try and design improvements to it. And then the last is the Department of uh, Public Works and the Rec and Park Department where we're doing streets, parks, and sidewalk standards and reporting. And major projects, um, this is just a very quick list of some of the things that are coming up in 1920. Um, we work with the Department of Health, Public Health. They've long wanted uh, an improved project on just patient tracking between the two hospitals and how things flow. And um, uh, the new Department of Public Health Director, Dr. Colfax, is enthusiastic about starting that this year. MTA, a lot of things are going to change there due to the current public interest in it and a new director when Ed Reskin um, leaves at the end of his contract in August. So they've asked us for a couple of particular things, um, analysis of their time to hire issues. We do work with them on uh, uh, contributing to the Vision Zero analytics and goals, and they also want our support on revenue projection. Um, 
Citywide capital planning, probably the main action in the upcoming year is the new permit center that will go into the building that the city is putting up at the corner of um, South Van Nash and uh, Mission. You've seen it's going up very quickly. And the city hopes to consolidate and streamline and improve a lot of permitting activities with the sort of forcing function of all those departments moving in together. Um, I will just mention one other and then turn it over to Mark to talk about audits. Homelessness and supportive housing, you've heard me talk about this before. We do a lot of work with and for them to help them get up to speed. They're about a little over two years old now. Uh, lots of increasing demands, new contract money that's coming in. Uh, we support the Healthy Streets Operations Center, which is all the city departments that work together on response to homelessness calls. We're the sort of data uh, mind for that, trying to make sure that they can track things and understand the encounters and referrals and make the city's response to homelessness more uh, thoughtful and consistent, and that'll keep going next year. And I'll just turn it over to Mark to talk about audits. Good morning, committee members. Mark De La Rosa, uh, Deputy Director of Audits for the Controller's Office. Uh, just to give you very quick highlights of what we are looking into in terms of work planning for FY1920, uh, we're basically going to continue a lot of our audit um, risk-based audit programs that we have established over the last few years. Uh, our construction audit program, we're going to continue on with our geobond expenditure audits, um, basically touching those that we have not done audits yet. Um, and we'll also revisit some of the ones that we have already audited, just so we cover the uh, areas that we had not done any testings um, for uh, in the future. Uh, we're also going to do a geobond um, uh, program closeout audit for the uh, SFGH. Uh, that is a program that is actually um, pretty much closed. Um, so we're just going to attest to um, whether all of the closeout requirements have been met. Um, we're also going to, as part of our ongoing um, audit program, is our citywide um, citywide audit programs that are basically looking at key business practices throughout the city from uh, P card, which is procurement card um, usage, to payroll, to cash, um, as well as inventory and um, eligibility types of uh, programs. So those are just looking at uh, compliance and also looking at whether the city is using best practices to uh, to complete those day-to-day um, -day operations. Uh, we also have a suite of, pro of uh, projects that we have uh, that we call performance audits. Uh, they are basically looking at effectiveness, efficiency, and economy. So not just looking at whether departments complied, but also looking at best practices and moving forward. Uh, so we have a number of audits that we're planning from the fire department's inspection program uh, to nonprofits um, to also um, um, city options program for uh, DPH. Uh, we have also um, an, an array of projects that we will be continuing as part of our IT cybersecurity audit program, uh, mostly uh, pen testing, penetration testings of uh, various city um, um, pro um, systems to make sure that they have the uh, right controls um, and, and that the practices are uh, in compliance with certain standards. Um, and of course, um, we have our whistleblower program that we uh, will continuously um, um, administer, as well as other um, follow-ups that we do throughout the year, uh, just to make sure that departments are actually uh, uh, providing um, actionable um, implementation uh, for all of the recommendations that we put forth. That is our presentation, and we're open to any questions or suggestions. Um, I have some suggestions, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I as I usually do. Um, for the standardized templates in particular, uh, I heard two recommendations. One, um, for all the standardized templates, have the, the, um, uh, the what was on the ballot? The, the bond, bond, bond description, yeah. 
as part of the template. Um, and then also uh, Brenda talked about um, uh, understanding um, uh, how, how changes are made and, and, that's a, and that effect um, in, a, in a real tangible way for us meeting to meeting. Um, so that was just some of, from my notes. Um, the uh, feedback on your report, a few, a few other things came up in this meeting. Um, one of them is uh, potentially a financial audit with the effects of the PG&E delays on the cost of bond projects. Um, I would love to hear back about when that can be done. Um, this, you know, I feel like we're on year two or three of hearing about this, and this is having a, a material effect on the cost of, of our capital. Um, and, uh, and, and the impact on citizens. I mean, it's... Uh, oh, but, yeah, if uh, it's happening to uh, these projects, it's happening to everyone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm thinking on affordable housing. It's a delay of eight to nine months for people to, to occupy the housing after we get it built because PG&E doesn't connect up uh, the stuff. Yeah, like so, a sort of a comprehensive look at the PG&E effect so, of this PG&E. So I want to yeah. make sure that we yeah. include that we know that this. Not just building the building, but also. It's yeah. actually real people. Absolutely. Um, uh, uh, we think we heard about the satisfaction surveys. I, I completely agree. Um, I, Peg, I don't know if we want to do a proposal around what that could be. I know we're still emerging in our thinking around this. Yeah, my suggestion would be we'll just, we'll put in your work plan with us to have at least one more satisfaction survey conducted during fiscal year 1920. And then we can talk about which bond program or programs you want to choose for it. Um, if it's done by a contractor, we need to do the standard steps for procurement. We write an RFP, we issue it. We have a pool of contractors of which the John Canapari that you saw this morning is one qualified con contractor, but there are others. And if, for example, you decide you want a satisfaction survey on a different kind of facility like the public safety building or something like that where who, the, what you're asking are the users of that building as opposed to the citizens, the design elements are different. So it needs more time to discuss, discuss what you'd like to test, um, mm -hmm. but we'll put it in the work plan and then we'll arrange a way to get the conversation going either with your liaison or in a, a meeting event. Okay, that would be great. And I think that we, we voted on doing housing, so. Okay. That would be great. Um, uh, and then the last um, question is, uh, you know, one of the things that came up, um, or at least for me, um, is how do we, how can we, what was the role of the capital programs in, in prioritizing active bonds and the bond projects? Um, and, the, and the bigger issue for me is um, if, we're, if we're responsible for our own time and on budget and the way these bonds are written, things can move in and out at any given time. I, I don't even know what we're measuring from a time budget or, or scope perspective. Um, I don't know if there's an, an ability to um, do some analysis on that, but that was, I think that that is, if we're gonna, I, I think the capital planning made it clear that they're gonna continue to write bonds this way, and so we need to, um, if they're not gonna change the way they write the bonds, then we need to adapt our way of trying to govern them. So I'd have I to look to be sure. Sorry, go ahead. I, was, I, I think that we can also send a note to the capital planning people saying, this is our experience in trying to evaluate the budget on time, and on scope, and uh, well, I, I think so we, forth. But they, were, they were, came here and we talked to them about that at that time. So we, I think they need a reminder. Yeah. I think bond programs vary a little bit in this respect. Park bonds, for example, there was you know a long period of unhappiness where it was felt that 
some park projects were promised and then pushed out of a bond. And so the park bonds have gotten a lot more specific in the last couple of issuances. And ESER may be a little bit different than that. And so let me, let me check and make sure I understand myself what the dynamic is when a cost overrun pushes something around in an ESER bond. Um, but again, just to, I guess, in case it puts your mind a little bit at ease, I know with park bonds, for example, they kind of learned that lesson from the past and specified the bond more closely. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, if there's other comments or questions, you, just quickly on the last two items. Um, so your uh, own annual report for next, for the fiscal year, um, Chair Chu, I don't know if you wanted to take this um, time to ask people to contribute a paragraph on their liaison roles or their, the way that you kind of organized it so that you can have people working between now and August when you um, would hopefully be putting that together. Yeah, I, um, I think, Mary, have you uh, sent out a previous one for all the members to look at? Or if not, can you? Yes, I can. It's also on our website as well, but okay. I can definitely send out the link today to you guys. Okay. And I think the, the question is you'll see um, if you are um, a bond owner um, or liaison, um, if you could write um, a, a paragraph or two about what you know about it. I mean, it's not extensive, but... Um. And so just to... what it end, The report itself ends up being sort of a cover letter from yourselves with your <coughs> liaison reports, and then we attach our bond report to it, the one that we presented on early in the year that has all the scope, schedule, and budget details. You don't have to worry about providing any numbers of, of that type. And then lastly, on the GoBox own work plan for fiscal year 1920, there's a sheet in your packet that um, lays out the proposed meeting schedule, the months for next fiscal year. And on the back are our notes about the scheduling conversation that we discussed with um, Member Chu and Member McNulty early on, and then Member Post came to our last meeting. So you're just kind of aware of what we were thinking in setting out this schedule. So during next fiscal year, you would meet five times, and you would not meet in July and December. Those were, among other things, the challenging months for scheduling. Each bond program would be before you to make a formal presentation once a year. So you'd be seeing all the detail, the schedules, that kind of thing, like you saw with the ESER and housing programs today. And then on the opposite six months around the clock, the next, um, that, that same bond program would not have a formal presentation, but the liaison would talk about it, and the bond program manager would be here to answer any questions or comments. So that's sort of how we envisioned that. All the Excuse me, I just want to clarify that. So for the for each bond on the second um, presentation, if you will, to the committee, the liaison member will report to the committee, but the bond manager will be available to answer any questions that may emanate from that presentation. That's right. And I guess our thinking was that in advance of that event, you might actually want to make a site visit or meet with the bond program manager and you, you can change this setup. Because um. you've got us down, pardon me, you've got the 2014 Transportation Road Improvement down, it looks like twice, once in August and then once next March. So which one would be which as far as, you know, the... So 
the August is the liaison report. Okay. And the March is the full report, full report. from okay. the staff. So it should be ready for the next meeting in August to <laughs> make the liaison report. Yeah. And again, you're free to change this. This is our suggestion. This is fine. <laughs> Just so as I know. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, whistleblower program would report twice a year. Our units would report twice a year. And all the like ones would be grouped together. Obviously, you wouldn't have like parks bonds on two different events. They would be all together. So that was our thinking about the schedule. We dropped in the audits that are um, on the calendar on which they're expected to be issued. So the, this is the result, your next year's work plan, when you take all those things together. And like I said, um, uh, Member Chu and Member Post had looked at it, and we made a couple of adjustments based on their suggestions. If there are others, you could give them now, or we could um, make changes, of course, at any time. I have some comments. Uh, first, uh, we meet once every two months. Why, why aren't we meeting once a month? I, so uh, I wouldn't recommend doing that because I don't think that the bonds change that much. The bonds don't, but the performance audits do, and uh, the other general audits do. Uh, there's enough that... Uh, that we have to kind of rush through a lot of stuff on a once every two months schedule. So I, I think that it would make more sense if it was once a month. That's my view. I know. Mine is the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> um, I mean, we were trying to simplify the content and meet some of the scheduling challenges that you all have experienced. Um, and I think standardized templates will help some with this as well. Um, they'll be a little bit little less confusing to try and figure out what's being shown in the presentations. Um, so this was some of our thinking and discussion about it. I just, I know there's nothing in the administrative code or anything else. And I don't, have no other body with oversight in the city that meets on, only once every two months. This is unique. And I cannot see any basis for it being unique other than the convenience of the committee members, which is, of course, not to be despised, but still not overwhelming. Well, I would like, to, I'd rather to speak a compromise. I would rather meet once a month for less time if versus every two months for three hours. So that would be my preference, but I'll yield to the majority of the group. And then we would divide, instead of two bond presentations, we'd have perhaps one bond presentation. We would have just had Easter today or just had housing today, for example. And we would accordingly spread the staff work, I would hope would be less for each meeting because we won't have as many items on the agenda. It would not be to keep staff having to double their amount of work or else I wouldn't support meeting once a month. The other thing I would like to suggest is uh, some analysis when you're doing the performance thing of city agencies have been asked by the mayor to turn in an impact on their operations of cuts in their budgets. And if you look at 
what they are saying will happen as a result of their cuts and compare it to what we see reported in their actual performance, there's quite a gap. So that I noticed uh, in some of the ones that I looked at, for example, uh, at ethics, it said that uh, they would not be able to perform the audits of city lobbyists, which is required uh, annually, that there be at least one lobbyist that's audited. And then they say that they have not actually done that in five years, not since 2014. And I've never seen in any of the reports uh, that we get at GOBOC that these kinds of gaps are taking place. And if it's taking place there, I imagine it's taking place in others. So what it makes me think is two things. We've got one set of information that's coming from the departments going to the mayor, and another set that's coming through you all. Can we reconcile those so we can see where the uh, points that are congruent? And the second thing that is that uh, the focus is necessarily on the departments with the most money and the most employees. But that means that some of the smaller departments, whether it's the rent board or the mayor's office of disability or, or ethics or elections, uh, we don't see in much detail. So I wonder if you could just take one of those a year and give us uh, more details on a smaller department. So our full work plan, which underlies these dozen bullet points that you saw, it is almost 300 lines <laughs> of projects and audits, which touch all departments. And then some of them touch selected departments that work together on something. And some of them are distributed among all departments. So I don't want to leave you with the impression that what I've just articulated in three minutes is a, the full complement. It's not. Well, I, so I there's um, lots and lots and lots of work. The full work plan that we'll publish, there'll be a narrative that sort of explains the content at the highest level. And then there'll be a schedule attached at the back that lists, I think, the top 50 or 60 in terms of hours that are going to be performed during the year. And so that gives you a more full sense of what we'll be performing. You're all on the list to receive every audit and performance update and scorecard change and everything else that we issue. So I, I think a lot of the content that you're seeking is actually represented in the reporting that we're doing. We wouldn't necessarily be talking about it here just because of the time limitations that you experience. Um, and it's related to your your overall schedule, too. I mean, having worked with this committee for a number of years, I mean, my observation is that, you know, six times a year was challenging. Every other month was challenging um, for member attendance and quorums. So again, what we were seeking with this proposed schedule that's in your packet was trying to reduce the scheduling challenge a little bit, organize the presentations so that the time blocks are you're experiencing, again, a full bond program presentation once a year, a liaison report on the opposite end of the clock, and then the other things are scheduled in when the load allows. And it seemed like that would be reasonable in, in terms of you know, what you can accomplish during the year. Um, maybe try it for the first couple of months of this schedule and see if you feel like the content of the report in your, in your August meeting and October meeting is too high. Um, and then in past meetings, too, we also asked the bond program 
managers to limit themselves by the number of slides and we strictly limited the time that they took on their presentation. Today, both went um, kind of long, but we can also set up the agenda so that they're, you know, stopped after a certain time. That would help. So my apologies everybody, but I have to go. I have another meeting to be at. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Fill me in. <laughs> Thanks, Bart. Thank Any other comments? No, she just answered my question. I was just going to follow up on scheduling difficulties. It sounds like that's been an issue in the past. Yeah, we've canceled a few this year. One or two. Um, okay. Uh, seeing no public, public comment? Yeah, they went home. We're adjourned. Well, I didn't make it after all.